Happy New Year, Liberty Wine Lovers. This is Jake from Tasting Anarchy. In this episode, we reviewed a sparkling wine, talked generally about sparkling wine, including champagne, and had some predictions for the wine industry in 2019 and politics in general in 2019. The episode's quite long, lasts uh, almost two hours, and toward the end, you'll uh, be entertained by my drunken antics, so stay tuned and enjoy the show. Down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When you get the wrong, start singing all night, drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When it gets wrong, start fighting all night. Knock down windows and take Welcome down to doors. Tasting Anarchy, your number one libertarian wine show. I think maybe your only libertarian wine show on the internet air. Um, this week I am joined by, as always, Mason Joseph. And also our new wine expert, Jackson Blood. Jackson, how are you doing today? I am good. I think that yeah, we've not got sick, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I think you've it yeah, sounds yeah, like yeah. you've recovered. Now you're yeah, out you wouldn't believe how like last week I was or not last week, last episode I was running on pretty much a week without a meal. So oh, wow. it was not performance at all <laughs> well i mean you know what so far your episode has been the most downloaded episode of tasting anarchy so oh. uh you did a great job cool. and it has been a like major feather in our cap i've actually done two appearances on other podcasts since then and both of them have mentioned how good that episode was so oh, that's good. yeah you're you're getting followers and i think you're getting followers yeah. um, that are going to be very supportive of your efforts to start your wine importing business um uh-huh. which is where kind of your expertise is going to start playing into the market. So I'm really excited to see how that ends up working yeah, out. I'm glad it's been working out well. Yeah, yeah. thank you so much for having me on again. Uh, well, you know what? It's been... I mean, I hope I can speak for Mason on this too, is it's been such an educational experience and mm-hmm. for both... Well, for me in particular, a lot of the stuff that you've been sharing with me and through private messages and stuff on Twitter has really opened up my palate to oh, great. Uh, new wines. So one thing in particular I want to plug real quick, because I'm going to do a, a mini episode on this, maybe maybe a 15, 20 minute episode, uh, is on Cabernet Franc. Right. Um, I've gotten, Jackson, you are 100% correct on this, is when you go to the other red section in Total Wine, they have maybe two, three Cabernet Francs, and they're all Price thirty forty dollars a bottle. Go over to t- now. I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, but is is it Luray or Lo- Loire? Uh, Loire Valley. Loire Valley. You go over to the Loire Valley section. Now, most of those are whites at Total Wine, but if you go to the bottom shelf, at least at the, at the one that I go to, the bottom shelf of the Loire Valley section, and it doesn't mean bottom shelf as in cheap. Bottom shelf as in that's not, I guess, what they're known for at Total Wine. You are going to have five, six bottles of very reasonably priced Cabernet Franc. Um, I'm going to review two of those plus a Italian Cabernet Franc and a American Cabernet Franc, which Mason, you and I reviewed in episode 40 of Taste anarchy mm-hmm. um i have the t- that was the 2009 I'm, I'm reviewing the 2010 so look forward to that episode that episode is definitely inspired by jackson he is our wine guru that we are going to for just the experience and the knowledge in general of all of the the wines that mason and i are starting to like venture out into yeah so one of the things i'll point out to you jacob um 
So I was in Total Wine when I found the uh, sparkling that we're going to talk about Mm -hmm. um, that we both have. So those of you who really enjoy the episodes where we both have the same wine, um, which episode 40 definitely was. Yeah. um, But in the Total Wine section for local wines, Mm -hmm. they had quite a few Cab Francs from Virginia. Really? Okay. I I didn't know that Virginia grew those. Yeah. And they had a vignette. And remember that mystery wine that I couldn't figure out what it was that, like, Ashley just loved? Yeah. Well, that's from the Williamsburg Winery. We know that's the winery it's from. Mm. I think it might have been their vignette. And I got a vignette from them. But one of the craziest things, they have it um, bottled or the, like, one of the aging barrels they put it in Mm -hmm. is acacia wood. Oh, that's 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 super interesting. DMT wine! (laughs) Yeah, exactly. DMT wine. Yeah, I mean, so, Jackson, I don't know how much uh you know about masons in my history but i made a a, episode so more than i (laughs) i i I made a a uh i guess heroic amount of dmt in the house that i lived in when mason and i were a little bit younger than we are now um and the dmt like the matter that i uh, extracted the dmt from was uh acacia root bark oh wow I didn't know idea you could do that. Yeah, so apparently I didn't know this until I started doing it, and I haven't done it in a long time. So if the feds you're listening to it, like maybe there's some statute of liber- statute of limitations or anything like that. But um, <laughs> the there is a high concentration of acacia root uh, or of DMT in acacia root bark. Mm-hmm. So right. um, that is what I got it out of. It's it's a process. It's pretty standard process of of extraction. You 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 can do this when you want to extract like. Um, you know how you get like root beer extract or you get like vanilla extract? It's basically the same process, but in this case, you crystallize the DMT after hmm. the extraction process. Is it similar to making a tincture or different it, It's exactly the same as making a tincture, right. um, okay. except that for you sense. then evaporate the uh, the alcohol that is the substrate and what's left is the pure crystal. So, okay. so it's That's just one more easy. step. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I did that back back a while ago but that's interesting that it's an acacia root barrel because that is very unusual it's concrete steel i think i think it's i know it's concrete and then there's another one and then there's acacia root or an acacia root acacia wood acacia wood yeah yeah well, acacia is kind of related to eucalyptus, if I remember correctly. I think so. I think it is. I think yeah. they're very similar woods. And they're both like uh, drier weather woods with a lot of aroma. Yeah, mm-hmm. originated in Australia. Just looked it up. Okay. Um, yeah, but given that it's so humid here. Yeah. Like, and the Williamsburg Winery is in, you know, it's about an hour away from here. It's like, this is an interesting combination. And then the concrete, I was just like, wait, what? Concrete? Yeah. That is that is unusual because concrete tends to be more porous. So I wonder what that's mm-hmm. like. Well, yeah, concrete's actually quite common in a lot of French wine because the older French winemakers and the families will have these huge vaults of uh, fermenting uh, vessels made entirely out of concrete. And the benefit there compared to stainless steels, it's cheaper to put in. And if you have it put in, it'll last 30, 40 years. You just don't have as much temperature control on the concrete. But if you're making, if you're trying to make, say, a white wine or a red wine that's mm-hmm. maybe a little bit fruitier little younger or if you're just looking to make a white wine that's a pure expression of the grape mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with concrete it's you know no less quality than say stainless steel wow that's, that's a, awesome yeah that is awesome that's really interesting because it, it never really occurred to me in you know most of the wines that i drink are oak aged because they're right. they're the kind of older red wines usually but the stainless steel is what i always associate with white wines but you know if stainless steel is not you know, hundreds of years old. It's it's 
you know, relatively new. So mm-hmm. there, there must have been a different process for producing white wines because white wines are not super, super new. So, and, and that kind of brings us to, I guess, the topic of the wines at hand, which is sparkling wine in general. Now, Mason, you and I chose a sparkling wine. Uh, well, actually, you chose it, and I went ahead and, and got one additionally. Mm-hmm. Do you want to try to pronounce the name, or do you want to let Jackson try to pronounce the name? I, I will let Jackson pronounce it correctly again. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. And which one was it? Sorry. So it's, it's uh, uh, Le Vert so the, the first Res. one is, I think, the, is the top. Yeah. yeah, that's the top billing, and then the Cermont, the uh, – is the second line of the bottle. Yeah. I just lost the, um, when you, where you sent me the name of it actually. Okay. That's all right. No, no, no. I'll just copy it. It's easy. Okay. Oh yeah. Sorry about that. No, hang on. Oh crap. It copied everything. <laughs> Here. Hang on just a second. Uh, I can I can always cut out this part. <laughs> that's yeah, the, that's the that. that's the joy of the audio that's, editing. Right. Oh, Levert Frere. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So you said that it was brothers. So it's Levert. Freres? Frere. There's okay. an accent Frere. mark over the E, but I'm sure. Yeah, Levert Frere. Um, yeah, no, I, I base I almost failed high school French, so I'm not the right person <laughs> to talk to. But. Nope. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I took German. <laughs> well, let me let me ask this question because this is something that I'm sure a lot of our listen listeners are are asking. So this is Le Vert Frère Crement de uh, de Bourgogne. It's a Cremant de Bourgogne. Yeah. Okay. And then it says Brut at the end. What yeah, does brut. brut mean? I see this very frequently, especially so, in the spark French. Yeah. So basically, that's a it's indicative of dryness. Got it. Uh, so, you, so oftentimes you'll see sec, demi sec, extra sec in wine. Brute is sort of a step above it, and you'll even see extra brute as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what brute means is brutal, so very little sugar added in extremely dry wine. Okay. The sweetest sparkling wines you'll generally find if you're looking sort of above the $15 range. Mm-hmm. Uh, for champagne, you'll, you'll pay a lot more, but is demi sec wine, which means somewhat dry but is actually somewhat sweet. Okay. So that's probably the sweetest sparkling wine you'll find. But extra brut, brut, that's sort of become de rigueur in champagne and sparkling wine in general. Champagne used to be much sweeter, and they used to add a lot more sugar. The Russians in particular, they loved adding sugar to their champagne. They would have champagne, basically the equivalents in sugar levels. And I'm not exaggerating this if you look at the sugar mm-hmm. per wine, um, near the same level of maple syrup. And then they would take... Um, and they would take sugar cubes after and stir it into the champagne before having it. That was sort of the 19th century czarist Russian style of drinking champagne. My teeth hurt. That I mean that that explains uh, my my very beautiful Eastern European bride's love of sweet wines is that <laughs> she is she she does like that. And if they were were, were mixing in sugar into those wines, there, there that makes sense. Wine. Yeah. Yeah. I actually well, um, let let's go ahead and cover some of the flavors of this wine because I do want to go into the other sparkling that I have, which is a demi sec, um, right. which I thought was too sweet, but I do want to kind of go into it. But first, let's go ahead and cro- cover Le Vert Frères. Let's um, go with the uh, the blend of this because it's not it's not a single exactly. So want to go forty two percent Chardonnay, thirty eight percent Pinot Noir, and a, a varietal I haven't heard of, uh, Gamay G A M A Y. Mm-hmm. 20% yeah. um, in age 24 yeah. months. I've actually heard of Gamay, and the only reason, though, I've heard of it is because it is a common blending um, white wine varietal. And I listened to an episode of a podcast called um, Wine for Normal People, which we've discussed on this show before, that is – they actually had an interview with the guy who's in charge of um, – 
I guess, regulating the the grape types and the process that goes into champagne. Mm-hmm. And so he talks about Gamay as being a common additive in white sparkling wines. It's not always used in champagne, but it's frequently used in champagne. I think I think you're getting it mixed up. Okay. Uh, Gamay, Gamay is a very light red grape, okay. and it's um, frequently used. It basically, most people will have had Gamay if they've had you know a lot of French wine before, because mm-hmm. it's the grape for Beaujolais. Pretty much all Beaujolais, with the exception of one percent white Beaujolais, is made from Gamay, and it's a grape that's actually lighter than Pinot Noir as a red. So basically, it's a very quaffable, mm-hmm. easy drinking thing. You might have heard of Beaujolais Nouveau. They try yeah. to advertise it around Thanksgiving. It's a big marketing affair and everything. It's crap. you know what? You as soon uh-uh. as soon as you mentioned Beaujolais, that you're right. I, I am mixing it up. So Beaujolais, they did an episode of Wine for Normal People about Beaujolais, which yeah. apparently means a lot of different things. Um, yeah, it's, it's a region south of Burgundy, north of uh, okay. Lyon. All right, that that makes a lot more sense because now that you're mentioning it. Um, I'll go ahead and put some notes in this because Wine for Normal People did a really good episode on Beaujolais because somebody wrote into them and said, I like Beaujolais. Uh, what are some good wines to, that, that should be for me? And she kind of goes like, well, Beaujolais means lots of stuff. Yeah, and, <laughs> it can uh, vary a lot. Like there's some, like most people when they think of Beaujolais think of a very easy to drink. Uh, they often use carbonic maceration, which mm-hmm. gets you this sort of bubble gum, very fruity quality in the younger ones. But mm-hmm. there's some really good Beaujolais that are similar and even at the same level of, of fullness of body and richness as mm. good Pinot Noir. So from Fleuret and Morgon, those regions, those Beaujolais can actually age 20, 30 years mm. as well. Okay. So they make some Beaujolais with real structure and they also make Beaujolais Nouveau, which they basically, they pick the grapes around September, October, ferment them, and then they release it November 30th, or basically around Thanksgiving time. It's a big marketing wow. scam and it's they have a big party. People get drunk and throw wine on each other, which is all fun and good. I'm all in favor of it, but yeah. the wine <laughs> is particularly great. Okay, well that makes sense. So you know, Mason, Jacob, next Thanksgiving. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, you know what? I'm thinking I'm going to try to come out maybe for one of the holidays and spend the holiday with you guys because mm-hmm. you and your wife. Because uh, I was just I was just kind of like reviewing like my vacation calendar and stuff, and I was like, I got to get out to Virginia. Because I said I was going to, you know, in the last episode that we did, it was a classic and we did that uh, Cabernet Franc. I said I was going to come out in like July and <laughs> and here it is uh, December and I haven't come back out yet. And well, I, I think I need, fair, I need you were planning to visit your wife at the time. That's so. true. That's true. So uh, but let's go ahead and get into the taste of this particular one. So mm-hmm. so this one again, let's I'm going to try to pronounce it. La Verte Fraise Cremant de... <laughs> <laughs> Bornon Brute. <laughs> uh, that, <laughs> it's going to be in the show notes, folks. I, so I, I can help with it uh, as long as I'm not sounding too pretentious. I really okay. don't want to no, go, go, go ahead and help with it because okay. it is, it's it, so difficult for me. We love mispronouncing crap. We love it when somebody pronounces it right. I am no means, if anybody speaks French, they will know that my pronunciation is absolute uh-huh. shit in this situation. <laughs> um, but it's a little bit. Um, <laughs> It's uh, Le Vert Frère, so Le Vert Frère, Frère, De Bourgogne. Bourgogne. Yeah, the Bourgogne is just uh, does not roll off the tongue. No, it's not no, a fun no. word. It's, it's like, like a, yeah. Spanish to it, Bourgogne. Bourgogne, yeah. 
So, so I wrote down some notes for this as far hey, as the, hang on real quick, Jacob. Sure. You got the 2015, right? Yes. Same, same year as you. Okay. So, okay, so this was actually yeah. for the listeners. This may not be on sale anymore by the time we release this, but this was on sale at Total Wine for $14.99. And I really do think $14.99 is a bargain for this particular one. Yeah. Personally. Because- yeah. I, I really like champagne and I like stuff that mock, like not mocks, but you know, does the style of champagne. And this is complete, not completely different, but it is. And I thought it was funny when Jackson was saying, you know, because mm-hmm. the brute, you know, meaning not sweet. My first glass of this, I let the the bubbles come out, which like the carbonation was intense on this, mm-hmm. like the very small, like rapid bubbles, more than I remember with Prosecco or any champagne or champagne fakes from, you know, the U.S. But this was actually kind of sweet tasting mm-hmm. for a Chardonnay Noir. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, I, I have an opinion of that, and I don't think that it's sweet because when I first tasted it, I was like, oh, this is sweet, and I don't think that it's sweet. I think that it's lemony, but not lemony in the sense of a fresh lemon, but more lemony in the sense of a lemon from like a lemon meringue pie. Like lemoncello. Yeah, exactly. So – it is lemony, so like, here's my notes on it, is that I thought it was it had a very citrusy smell. It was very bubbly. Mm-hmm. Um, when I took a sip of it, I agree, very small bubbles. So very crisp tasting, sort of like a cider. Mm-hmm. But the taste was very lemony, um, but not, like I said, not lemony in the sense of a fresh lemon, more lemony in the sense of a baked lemon good. And mm-hmm. um, it also had a uh, like a farminess toward the end, and the farminess that you know you and I Mason have talked about this before. I always describe like the the farminess as sort of a yeasty taste, a ye- uh, it's like yeasty, more like um, mixed with dirt a little bit, like not mm-hmm. dirt, but not in a bad way, like farminess as in like the fresh turned soil the yeah, farminess the and yeast yeah it smells like the earth fresh cut hay it had a lot of that in the aftertaste of this particular um sparkling wine and the lemoniness was again not a fresh lemon but tasted a lot like you know my mom used to pack me these little debbie um lemon pies in my in my school lunches when I when I went to public school. Most of the time I was homeschooled, but she would pack these little Le- little Debbie lemon pies in my school lunch. And one of my favorite things ever, sometimes, you know, when I go to 7-Eleven, I see they have a lemon pie. I'll get it just to try to recapture that memory. But <laughs> this reminds me a lot of that. And it, uh, so for the price, I think this is great. It, it kind of reminds me of going back to a school lunch, but it also reminds me, like, this is the way I imagine my younger self drinking this wine, uh, mm-hmm. is little Jacob sitting at a lunch table on a farm, eating a lemon pie while goats eat fresh hay. That's the, that's what I imagine in my mind is going on with this, with this, uh, sparkling <laughs> wine. It's, I, I really do think it's great. And for fourteen ninety nine, awesome, really awesome I mean, purchase. And yeah, and if you want, I'd love to. You know, you guys actually, your analysis in many ways is just spot on for that wine. And if you want, can explain perhaps why you're getting those notes compared to champagne. Real quick, let me let me give a little more on this. Okay. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 no. This is perfect because like it 
it gives us a more structure to what we're going to talk about the normal. So with this one, like when I first opened it, you know, I had to go into the our um, laundry room and close the door. So like my daughter wouldn't wake up when I you know popped the cork and gave my wife half a glass and she literally had to set it down because the carbonation was so intense on it. Mm-hmm. Just, I got to wait. And I ended up waiting the carbonation out. And that was like a disservice because the, the sweetness actually kind of goes away with the, when you're drinking it with the heavy carbonation going, yeah. um, it, it's such an, and this is the thing, like, I, I really like Prosecco. Now, I, I don't drink, you know, expensive Proseccos like Barefoot. But, you know, hey, Prosecco is Prosecco sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I have definitely have had cha- real champagne. And I've had the California or, you know, wherever they'll actually label it as champagne. It's not from champagne. And there's usually not like a bitterness to it, but kind of almost like a grigio. Like the there's something more sharp to it. Like, I think right. sharp is the best description. Mm-hmm. This is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like, in, like, I mean, I would have paid, if I had paid $20 for this, I'd been like, this still got a good deal I've sure it's 14.99 it's normally 17.99 i'm like yeah this is my go-to sparkling from now like yeah. unless jackson yeah. goes well if you just go up this one tier you're gonna be having like twice the fun mm-hmm. which well and, and you know and jackson problem. you you had actually some other recommendations but why don't you give us the structure that you were talking about before so you can kind sure. of explain what was going on because i you also had some good recommendations for mason and i and then once we're done with that we'll get into the wine that you're tasting tonight and then the the other wine that i had tonight night. Yeah, so basically what you're dealing with in Burgundy is actually you're dealing with largely the same grapes as Champagne. Mm-hmm. Champagne's three major grapes, and there's some that they're allowed to add extra, but frankly, I would forget about those. Is okay. The main grapes of Champagne are, are Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Pinot Meunier, which I think is what you were confusing for Gamay earlier because they sound similar. Mm. And that's a third grape that's often used in Champagne. Mm. And it's actually making a bit of a comeback. It's Pinot Meunier means the Miller's Pinot. So mm. it actually looks quite like Pinot Noir. It's a red grape, but it has little speckles on it, which kind of look like speckles of flowers. So hence the name Pinot Meunier. Mm. Um, that, and that creates a, a relatively balanced, similar wine to Pinot Noir, but a bit more acidic. So that's often used in blending. But to go on to Burgundy, the reason why you're having a lot of differences between that and Champagne is I just sent you a, I sent you a map on Skype. Burgundy and Champagne are actually quite close together, but Burgundy is south of Champagne. So even though they're growing the same grapes they're getting a lot more sun and ripeness champagne in the summer is topping off around 75 degrees generally most days you'll get the heat wave occasionally but burgundy is much more around 80 82 so there's a big difference okay. in temperature now, is okay so uh borgone is burgundy actually yeah borgonia and burgundy same thing it's just a french word for burgundy Got it. well okay. it's like deutschland in germany but exactly. that's what I, that's what i was trying to figure out i was like exactly. oh okay now, like this, this makes more sense. I I understand where I'm drinking from yeah. now. And, and I think if I remember correctly, you're a history guy, right? Well, I Which think I'm we a, both are. Yeah, yeah, I think you both are. Sorry about that. Um, no, 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 it's fine. Yeah, no, one, one easy way to remember it is Burgundy was, there was a Burgundian tribe that came mm-hmm. over from Germany after the end of the Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah. Settled mm. region. Mm. It's called Burgundy. So that maybe that's a... Nice little that, way to remember. Yeah, that is actually that's a really helpful way, at least for me to remember it, Mason. I don't yeah. I don't I can't speak for you, but like Burgundy and that that does strike a lot more chords in my mind than like just Burgundy in general. Yeah. Well, I mean, after seeing the map, I think I'm gonna always kind of have an idea of it. But yeah. Yeah. So that and so basically, you're gonna get that difference. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, the process for uh, Burgund uh, for Cremant de Bourgogne and the process for Champagne, they're both using the traditional method. The mm-hmm. difference is primarily the climate and the biggest difference is and the reason why 
even though Burgundy, as you know, is an extremely expensive wine region, why Cremant de Bourgogne is quite affordable is because they're picking the grapes um, at more of the village level and at more of the plains rather than the hillsides would have as much reliant ripening. And so basically, as sort of a hedge against a bad harvest, a lot of the farmers who have extra grapes around that perhaps they don't want to put in their, you know, their estate bottle. Mm-hmm. They'll sell to a negotiant um, who will blend those together to create a Cremant de Bourgogne. You're still drinking entirely Burgundian wine, but they're they're mixing them together and they're uh, and they're creating that wine after. Sh- most, most of Champagne actually uses the same process. The difference being all, all the Champagne vines virtually are used for sparkling wine, whereas in Burgundy, the top wine the top vines are almost always used for still wine, ninety nine percent of the time. Well, this is. This is hmm. really, this really puts a lot of stuff that Mason and I have been talking talking about on the show into context, and that is that one of the things that I, I don't know if it, it's not that we didn't understand it, but it was it was sort of one of those things that we were like, this is kind of a weird uh, argument. Is that uh, in the Willamette Valley, one of the arguments that the Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association was making against people like Copper Cane was that Copper Cane was using a lot of valley floor grapes. Yeah versus the hill grapes and the hill grapes according to the Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association was a higher quality of grape and should be I guess um should be using the Willamette Valley label as opposed to the Valley Floor grapes, which were a lower quality according to them. So this sort of makes sense in this sort of uh, context is that you've got these Valley Floor grapes, which has a different terroir and a different flavor coming from them, not as not of uh, not as high of a quality, I guess, as in Burgundy, where you've got sort of the higher terrain more of a interesting dynamic where the grapes have to sort of struggle through the hill soil and it and it sort of translates that flavor into the grape itself. Yeah, exactly. And if you're looking at the classification, oftentimes you'll see Premier Cru, Grand Cru, mm-hmm. um, No Cru on Burgundy and Champagne. What that generally means in many cases, in most cases, even though in Burgundy, it, most of, a lot of the crews were, um, if you want to hear some crazy, history. A lot of this was started, the work classifying Burgundian vineyards was started under the Emperor Charlemagne. Oh, wow. Uh, that's pretty, so, that's, that's, so that's it's, go back. It's an old history. So they've been classifying it for a while, but the primary criteria for classification is the uh, ones on the hill itself at an angle. Um, so they're facing the sun. Those are the, um, those are the Grand Cru. Those are the highest end wines. The ones on top of the hill are the second highest in the premier crew. They're not in an angle, and so they're not struggling as much, and they're not getting the right, and they're not getting the same amount of sun. Mm-hmm. And then the ones at the bottom, where you have the rain going down, so too, uh, the rain is flowing down, you get higher yields, thus generally lower quality wine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it will ripen, but it's not. You're not getting as complex a wine. Of course, this is an overly broad generalization. You know, you can if you're a good winemaker in Burgundy in the right region, and you're on the valley floor. I guarantee you, you can make a top, 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 top world-class wine. Why? Yeah, that makes sense. But this is the traditional method of classifying it, particularly because historically it was harder to ripen Burgundy than it is today. Okay. Okay. I mean, that makes makes a lot of sense. So this is uh, something that we talked about, and I don't remember the episode, but we talked about kind of the bubbles being not a desired trait in the wines. Yeah. Yes. And... Now, Burgundy obviously does other uh, still wines, but is it still kind of seen in France that like the the bubbles aren't 
as a desirable wine trade. It's kind of is this uh, is this no, style more for export? This style is act, it's consumed quite often in France domestically because the French will have a good deal on a decent wine. <laughs> <laughs> They're after our hearts. <laughs> I know, yeah. Um, but basically, yeah, the, the French don't have any snobbery surrounding bubbles. Traditionally, bubbles were a fault. If you're trying to make a still wine and you see some bubbles in it, that means it's a fault. That generally means it's a fault in the winemaking unless there, there's a few exceptions to that. But generally speaking, that's what it means. But, you know, once Champagne started producing, you know, sparkling wine, and there's a big debate and a lot of controversy over who gets credit. The English claim credit and then um, the widow Clicquot claims credit. I'm, I side with the French over the English, of course. <laughs> um, Even though you studied there. Yeah. Uh, because I studied there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. And both Jacob and I are very fond of the English. We are. Well, we are, but I, on a mixed mixed terms. Mixed terms. Well, you're, you're more Scottish yeah, than, yeah, exactly. than English, and I'm more English yeah. than any of – well, I'm more German than anything, but I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, of the Isles. I'm more I'm standard, English. I'm standard, you know, German, British, yeah. French. <laughs> I mean, you know what my dad always says about, like, uh, people like us? Is he always says, Heinz, Heinz 57. Is it, there's, yeah, there's, exactly. There's, yeah, 57 <laughs> flavors. And that's and that. That's what makes an American. <laughs> so good marketing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Good marketing. <laughs> you know, my name, yeah, I, I can't be. I can't hate them too much. My yeah. name gives it away, but you know, Jackson, I'm going to let you continue with your explanation. I'm going to run over real quick to the fridge and grab this because I need to fill my glass up again. Yeah, so, of course, of course. So go ahead and continue with um, whatever. What you know, Macy, well, yeah, you were talking about bubble size, bubble size, or, and also who is in charge of making bubbles part of. Uh, I guess the accepted culture of tasty wine. Yeah. So, so the, the here's the British theory, and it's it's actually quite a solid one. It's that if you look at the climate and you look at the difference, Britain has always imported wine from France for obvious reasons. It's colder there. There actually used to be some vineyards in the south of England historically in medieval records, but that's just obscure historiography. Um, but basically, they were always importing wine from France. And Champagne, if you look at it on the map, it is quite far north. Making wine in Champagne is like making wine in Seattle or Vancouver, for example. Mm -hmm. Not something you really want to do. Um, so it's a colder region. They had a harder time ripening it and achieving the desired sugar levels. So if you want to look at it scientifically, what like, what happens when you're fermenting and creating wine is you're uh, transforming sugar into alcohol. And what is a byproduct of sugar transforming into alcohol? Carbon dioxide, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what occurred was... They would make the champagne, um, they would pick it, make the bottle around probably, and they would have the bottle start shipping out probably around February, March. And by, in March, by the time it got to London, it would have warmed up. And it's actually warmer in London during the winter season than it is in Champagne because you're, you're on an island, you've got more of the Gulf Stream influence. So the mm -hmm. fermentation process would reoccur. Um, the problem the with like, historically, and the reason why champagne up until, say, the 18th or 17th, 18th century, or maybe 17th century, if you believe some sources, was that the, the glass bottles that the French were using were not strong enough to hold the, um, the fermentation, the carbon dioxide. So they would mm. explode. So they were trying to get rid of that fault. So when they shipped the wine to England, they would ship it in the barrel itself. They wouldn't bottle the wine, then ship it. That's 
quite inefficient. Mm -hmm. They would ship it and then they would bottle it in, in England. And because of the Industrial Revolution, this is the English theory, their glass was much stronger than the French because they had coal-fired furnaces as opposed to charcoal. To oh, the, right. Um, and genre is in France at the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they, that's their theory as to why it, got spar uh, why it got sparkling. The person who really marketed it and made it in, but there's no, there's no real evidence that the English noticed that trend and were like, okay, let's start drinking champagne campaign because it's bubbly now. That's mm -hmm. just, it's more of a theory. Right. The real kind of marketing started under Veuve Clicquot. You might have heard that of that champagne. Brand. Yeah, I think, quite I, think I have. Yeah. 55 a bottle, right? Um, so the widow Clicquot, and there's a book about her, which I actually haven't read, but I've you know, read enough of the info to know basically what she was, she had a house that produced champagne that mm -hmm. she figured out a way to keep the bubbles in champagne. Mm -hmm. And she really started that trend because um, after her husband died, she was still trying to sell these bottles. Yeah. And this was during the period of the French Revolution, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened was there was a ton and there was tons of French nobles fleeing the country who wanted, um, who still wanted to have their champagne, their French wine. And she masterfully kept track of where they were in all of the locations and was able to build kind of a European wide network, sending this wine onto these people. Mm -hmm. Not to mention it coincided, French Revolution coincided with huge economic growth in France. Yeah. You know, you have the, the you know, the French Revolution was actually quite free market in many ways. So you had a lot of economic growth happening at the time. So the new middle class wanted to copy the habits of the old aristocracy. Mm -hmm. So what did they do is they wanted to drink the same wine. So that's a large part of why champagne got to be so important. Yeah, you know, and I've I've read a lot and seen like in documentaries and stuff a lot about um, her. Say her name again because I'm I'm blanking uh, it's on the widow Clicquot, Philippe Clicquot. Mm -hmm. It's her husband, and so Madame Clicquot is what she's commonly referred yeah. to. So, so like a lot of times in the documentaries and stuff that I see about that is she is basically painted as this entrepreneurial genius. And yeah. and from the evidence that I've seen, uh, that's absolutely true, is that she knew that even though the bubbles were considered a flaw, she knew that the people who drank it locally and drank it regionally <laughs> in France, that um, they knew that um, champagne and also the, I guess, the method of turning the bottles as they yeah. age, she's the one who Literally. came up with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, riddling because that's because yeah. you need to get rid of the um, the buildup of residue um, in the bottle. So you you go through the process of riddling, yeah. riddling it, and gradually all the residue forms at the top of the bottle. Then you break the then you break that off mm -hmm. and put on the crown cap, and that's how you bottle the champagne. Yeah, and I've seen sure. I've seen like in like a lot of the documentaries and stuff about it. There's like <clears> guys who will go down into these like these amazing champagne cellars, and they'll they have like their white gloves on and. They'll, they'll be turning all of these bottles. Yeah. And, and they've got these champagne cellars with all of the, the amazing molds that grow down there and the, and the different types of fungus and stuff like that. Like really, really cool, like old old school, you know, fungus and like all these interesting things that also, you know, tell whether it's true or not, I don't know. But from the tradition um, is that like if you have the correct fungus and stuff growing in your uh, – 
cellar, then you've got like the the good champagne going on down there. So you've got like all these people that are going down there. They're turning it. They can also like read like the length of the different types of fungus and stuff like that. And yeah. that's like a like a legit awesome. It's a very it's a very old world thing. I've actually gone um in California in Napa. Actually, I've visited one of the one of the older uh, uh, Napa sparkling wine houses that does the same exact method and has somebody riddling. And it's fascinating to go down into the caves and see, you know, what the method they used for this. Those caves were, this was an older house. Mm-hmm. This was um, Tromsberg, and it was started in the kind of the mid to late 19th century. So mm-hmm. the caves were started then and dug up wow. Chinese labor. Wow, okay. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty unique thing to, and it's on the top of, the the um, the estate itself, not most of the vineyards, is on the top of this hill off the side of the road in Napa. And it was just incredible because I went there last March, mm-hmm. Um when you drew it, and it was right after you had this huge amount of rain in March. So you just had the most crazy blooming of all these beautiful green plants going up to this old house and going into these humid cellars. It's quite something. Oh, wow. I, I would love yeah. to go see it because, you know, I'm from that. I, I'm not from the Napa region. I'm from up. Actually, you and I, Jackson, have talked about this. I'm from the foothills yeah. in El Dorado County. And beautiful. Um, be- also beautiful, very different area, not nearly as yeah. old of a wine tradition. But you were saying that, you know, there there are some good wines produced in that area. Oh, yeah. I, I actually just, sorry, sorry, I don't mean to yeah. go into tangent. You don't, you don't have to apologize. Oh, cut there, cut there, me off when you're ready. There's no tangents on this show. Uh, yeah, That's I, the I, show. I, it's a podcast, but um, <laughs> I was wrong about, I, I was wrong about that. I was looking into Amador County. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who just uh, fall, mentioned us on Twitter, Mr. Something, sorry, I'm horrible with names. That's okay. Um, mentioned he um, had a uh, Zinfandel from that area, and I was looking up Amador County, and apparently- Oh, oh yes, Pseudo, Pseudo. His name is uh, yeah. pseudo, pseudo Intellectual. He changes his yeah, name. Pseudo Intellectual. Yeah. yeah, great name. Yeah. yeah. I, I can relate. Yeah, me um, too. Me too. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, well, clearly, yeah. I can't. <laughs> um, no, no, but actually, Amador County, I was looking it up. Oh, uh, there's the, some of the first vineyards in California, other than the Spanish Minish yeah. uh, Mission were planted there because of the gold rush. So the miners wanted to drink. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, in, in um, well, Amador County, Eldorado County are very close to each other. Um, the What was the winery that you told me about? It was... Uh, uh, Terre Rouge. Terre Rouge? Yeah, um, they do phenomenal. They also have a, a different house where they do more Zinfandel and traditional uh, California-American styles called um, Easton, but Terre Rouge, they're doing... Uh, primarily Rhone blends. They also do uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this part of California that I'm from, and, and not to get off on too terribly of a tangent. So this ter- ter- it, it's only about 35 minutes away from where I grew up. Um, but there is there's so much wine production going on in the part of California where I grew up now, and it's because they do have a very similar climate to northern portions of France and southern, I guess, south western portions of germany um and i mean it is close like my sister owns a house that's less than 25 minutes away from uh where uh terra rouge estate wineries is uh so there there is a lot of interesting things going on there uh i really don't want to get too much off on this topic i think jackson you and i need to maybe mason will pull you in also on this because you you were living for a couple months in um Stockton. Stockton. Yeah. I was going to say Lodi, <laughs> but I know it's not Lodi. It's Stockton. No, no. Um, well, Lodi, I mean, Stockton like, looks down on Lodi, which is funny. It is funny because Lodi, like, Lodi is a very working class town, but like, from where I grew up in California, Stockton is a very work, working class town. 
as well. But uh, but one of the things I wanted to kind of touch on is um, just kind of to try to bring this back into sparkling wines is uh, Texas does produce sparkling wines, and and now Texas is where I'm I'm living now. I got a second a second sparkling line sparkling, sparkling wine. wine. From uh, Texas, which is called uh, Flat Creek's Flat. I'm, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly. Flat Creek Sparkling Almonde, and it is a. It's got almond in the name. It, it oh, has man. almond in the name exactly. It is a similar combination as wines from um, Champagne, but it's done here in Texas. It's uh, it's. Sharon Blanc and Chardonnay. I don't know what percentages they do. It's eleven percent alcohol by volume. Honestly, I don't think this was a very good wine, but Victoria will love it, and it she'll love it because it it has such a strong almond taste, and it's very sweet. Um, this is a wine that has uh, the you know I tasted it, and I was kind of like, okay, well you know this is cut kind of a little bit of apple, a little bit of pear. Um, it does have a lot of that. It, it is overshadowed by the amount of vanilla and almond that is in this particularly sparkling this, wine. This, to be honest, mm-hmm. like when I come out to Texas, I have to get a, a we have to get a bottle of this. We'll this get it. Sounds almond, vanilla, yeah, and apple. Like this sounds like a Starbucks like seasonal treat. <laughs> you, you actually, you and your wife will probably love this. To me, it was way too sweet, but it's well, almondy. <clears throat> it's very, very. You know, and this is the thing is. It, is you know Jackson? You were alluding to this earlier. It's a demi sec, so it's supposed to be like a slightly sweet wine. To me, this was nauseatingly sweet. I'll tell you why, because I just I'm on their website right now. All right, go you're for right, it. Go for it. Um, Jackson, right forensic the, destroyer. You're right about the 11 percent alcohol. The way they can achieve 11 percent alcohol in Texas is um, by picking the grapes quite early before too much sugar happens. But um, so that's part of it. The other part of it is they probably uh, cool down the temperature to stop the fermentation process. Okay. So what happens with lower alcohol wines is less of the alcohol, uh, less of the sugar is turned into alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. So sugar equals potential alcohol, if you want to look at this in a chemistry equation. Yeah, exactly, way. exactly. Um, so what that means is that they probably did a cooling process or something to stop stop the fermentation down. So even though the sugar per, I don't know, you know, liquid ounce is mm-hmm. is that of a demi-sec, yeah. it's going to taste a lot sweeter because you're tasting much more of the sugar because not as much of it has been turned into alcohol. The same way when you have a Riesling, sometimes you'll see a Riesling around seven, eight percent alcohol. It's quite mm-hmm. sweet, and it won't say a sweet wine because yeah. it, because what the sweetness measurement is referring to, particularly in German wine, the level of um, grape must, so the level of potential sugar to turn into alcohol, rather than our overall perception of sweetness. And um, I think Mason, you mentioned earlier, uh, you found, um, sorry, um, you found that the um, the wine you had, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you, you said you found it sweeter, right? So that, yeah, that after, after the carbonation had died down oh, yeah. in yeah, the glass, carb- like letting it sit. Yeah, yeah, carbonation exactly. So, for example, when you have a like, if you have a Coke or a Dr Pepper, it doesn't taste that sweet when you have it, even though it's filled to the brim with sugar. It's actually far sweeter than most dessert wines in terms of sugar per volume. If you have those, mm-hmm. so it's actually sweeter than some of the sweeter dessert wines. Jackson using- m- mentioning doc- diet Dr Pepper, Dr Pepper in general. You have yeah. hooked Mason and me. I love Dr <laughs> Pepper. That's, um, that's our so absolutely favorite, yeah. you know, pop or cola or whatever oh, people oh, call it. Take a step back. Jacob and I, um, you know, to the blasphemy of my wife personally, we are 
diet soda fans. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, like I know what you're saying. Like the the when you taste like a di- uh, Dr Pepper, it is sweet. Yes, but if you, it, it's not the sweet like you're eating like a pound of sugar. But like compared to like a Gerstmeier, like wine. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, however, again, great pronunciation, but like the the sugar level in that is like six times that wine, but like the wine tastes sweeter than the, than the, the soda would. And the other thing is, so there's two things, and this is actually incredibly helpful for a lot of people, including myself, to understand how people perceive wine. Is it's two things. One, the carbonation makes you think less about the um, the taste of the sugar, so you don't notice it as much. Mm-hmm. The other thing is what they do is they add uh, citric acid to balance out the sugar in it. And oh. that's why when you have a, the more acidic a wine you have, the less you perceive the sugar in it. Mm. Okay, that, so that, that, that makes sense. And uh, this this the wine that we that Mason you and I are enjoying is twelve percent ABV, which is not high, but given the laws in the United States, you can be plus one or plus uh, or minus yeah. one. Um, it's the same thing. Is that like you know? Yeah, I think this this is probably twelve and a half. Like, yeah, probably it does seem that way. But the yeah, my wife had a big glass of it, but I had the rest of the bottle because unfortunately I'm no longer enjoying it because I drank the rest of it. <laughs> and given my level of intoxication and desire for more wine, about twelve and a half. Yeah. Well, you know th- this this almond one from Texas that I had. It's mm-hmm. it's presented as eleven percent alcohol by volume, and that's probably true, or or at least close, maybe eleven twelve percent. It's relatively close. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty close. It it is a medium dry wine. Um, I I would say it's on the sweeter end of medium dry. It does have the hints of apple. It does have the hints of pear. Um, it I I do feel though like if you're not interested in trying wines, um, it is overwhelmed by the vanilla almond flavor. The, the almond flavor of it, I'm not sure how they achieve this almond flavor, but the almond flavor does sort of overwhelm it. If you've ever had um, Bailey's Almonde, that is the the almond flavor from Bailey's Almonde versus like Bailey's regular. And, and the only reason I know this is because Victoria, my wife, she loves Bailey's Almonde. Um <laughs> So the Bailey's Almonde, so the Almonde flavor of that really overwhelms the other flavors. I don't think Mm -hmm. it's a very well-balanced wine, Um, but it is very aromatic. Um, It is very almondy if you like almondy flavor. It is crisp, not nearly as crisp as the... I'm not phrase. Yeah, the Verit phrase. Uh, It's not nearly as crisp as that, but it is very crisp. Um, and it also has a lot of the the flavors that a sparkling wine should have. So it does mm-hmm. have that grassiness, not as strong of a grassiness as the other one, but mm-hmm. it, it does have a grassiness. So if if you guys are in Texas and you can get this particular wine, um, it's Flat Creek Sparkling Almonde or Almond. Um, go for it because it's it's interesting, and especially if you like a sweeter wine, go for it. Mm-hmm. All right, so I've got two things. Uh, first, for when uh, Jackson was talking about how north Champagne is. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, looking at the map, like I won't give a direct, but like almost 50% of Champagne is north of Paris. And Paris is very far north in France, um, outside of, you know, clearly like the very northern France parts, but it's very far north. But second, I think this is the perfect time. Jackson, what are you sipping on tonight? Or 
Um, I don't know if you're tonight, I have a particularly obscure wine. I'm <laughs> sipping on, and sorry, I don't have the bottle with me just on my glass. Mm-hmm, I'll take right. a picture, though. Um, I'm <laughs> sipping on, it's a pet nat, so it's a Domaine, Domaine Philippe Tessier. Uh, Vent de, uh, de France, Filombole. So it's actually an unclassified French wine, mm-hmm. and it is a pet nat, so petelon naturel, using the ancestral method. So what it, so what this is, is it's these have kind of become more popular, become more in vogue in the past few years. Is it's a basically using a very old method to create a sparkling wine, rather than adding any um, any sugar or yeast in order to spur the fermentation process. What they do is they just bottle it, and they don't do any process to contain the fermentation, but they allow the fermentation to occur in the bottle. So they bottle it at a lower ABV, right? So alcohol by volume um, than the potential is for the wine. So this wine is 13% alcohol, maybe 13.5. What they probably bottled it at was 11 and allowed the rest of the sugar to ferment in the bottle and allowed the carbon dioxide to build up rather than escape in the fermentation vessel. Um, so you get a very light bubble and it's sulfur-free, so a natural wine. So it's a very different method and you get some different notes on it it's a Vendée de france so it's unclassified but i looked up the maker and they're based in the loire right and this is this is using some I, honestly this is using some obscure grapes that nobody really needs to know about but in case you're curious it is 90 percent uh romoranton which is a loire kind of cousin of chardonnay mm-hmm. uh and 10 percent uh menu Pinou, uh which is also go- which also goes by the name of arbois and that's also a loire grape and th- both of those have somewhat ser- similar characteristics of chardonnay but it's made in a very different manner so you actually get a bit more carbon dioxide in the wine which isn't a fault in the style wine so okay. i get kind of a bruised apple note a mm-hmm. um, kind of pear not really the citrus you expect definitely that farmyardy barnyard thing but in a good way mm-hmm. kind of like it's it's a bit like i don't know have you ever gone have either of you gone picking apples when you were younger or something like that absolutely like i'm from i'm from the foothills of california yeah. and one of the things that you do in the fall in california is you go picking apples at apple hill exactly mm-hmm. so so what this is is it smells very similar to if you're walking around that apple field picking apples and, you, and some of the apples have fallen down and there's a little bit yeah. of that smell of those going by, but then you're also smelling the fresh apples and kind of the crisp fall air. It's a quite acidic wine as well. So that's sort of how I would describe it. And the bubbles are much smaller in this than, say, uh, any sort of method, traditional traditional method um, sparkling wine. Well, the, ones we, the one we have is of the traditional method, so... Sure. Like and those bubbles to us were very small. Yeah, well, this, this, this makes this me want to get this wine. Like you don't get bubbles as much. Jackson, can you repeat what you said? Yeah. Oh, this yeah, this is a little different because the bubbles in the method traditional wine. Mm-hmm. They're small, but they're, there's a lot of them, and you have that. Mm-hmm. This does not. This probably has one eighth the amount of bubbles, so it's much more mm-hmm. like like a mineral water, if you will. Got it. Okay. So I, I want to try this wine, and one of the reasons is like the way that you describe it kind of reminds me of when I was a kid, we had several apple trees in our yard growing up, mm-hmm. and we would, when the <clears throat> apples would fall off, they would kind of become softer, and we'd throw them at each other. Yeah, you get a little of that. Yeah, exactly. Not, yeah. not everyone loves it, but I, I like it. I'm, I'm sentimental, and I, I quite like that acidic flavor Yeah, as yeah well. exactly. So there, let there's, me, there's let me ask acidic... two things real quick. Because this is paramount to our show <laughs> style. Go for it. One, where did you procure this from? I got it. So this um, 
I got uh, my uh, my family picked it up before I came um, at one at a really good local wine shop in Greenwich, Connecticut. Mm, okay. Okay. And then, do you have any idea what it costs? Uh, twenty one dollars. That's very fair because this is yeah from from like just looking at the label and the way that you describe it. The label to me is very clean. It's a little bit fun, which makes mm-hmm. it for, like, especially for our sparkling. Yeah, exactly. For a special, for, for a sparkling, it's a little bit fun, but it's also it's a very clean label. And lately, I've been very interested in the marketing, um, the marketing psych- psychology of uh, wine in general. Is that sometimes you get these very like interesting clean labels, and sometimes you get these very like uh, very loud labels, and and well, and, right. and, mm-hmm. and then you get labels like ours where it's very clean on the text, mm-hmm. but there's a seal, there's a an embossment or mm-hmm. like a a background seal in the back of the lower name. I mean, like some of these labels are like there's these weird mixes of like almost imperial style, and then you get yeah. the one like Jackson's where it's like I could see that on a beer, like on yeah. a yeah, like and this is, oh, this is like, also unclassified too. This doesn't they don't right. tell you region on the label because of European wine law because you're not supposed to make a wine like this in the Loire Valley. If you're making a sparkling wine in the Loire Valley, it's got to be a Cremant de Loire and using the traditional methods. So these, this person is just they, he makes other wines, but he's kind of having fun and doing an experiment with so, this. Well, just you, on you, the, I'm sorry, Mason. You shared this with us before, Jackson, where it was when we were talking about the uh, the Italian um, super, super Tuscans. Tuscans. You son of a bitch! Is this where I was going? Oh, is that where you're going? Okay. Yeah, because because I remember, yeah, I remember when Jackson was on uh, previously, I thought I caught something where in in I don't mean to ascribe anything if if it's not true, but where Jackson didn't seem to agree with the idea of the super tough skin or the maybe the way not the way people my, perceive my, I have, it. I have right. a, my issue with it isn't that they're breaking the rules per se. It's that what they're doing is they're using French wines in an Italian region that they, that is actually quite a good region. And I think mm-hmm. they should be showcasing their own grapes and making their own wine, mm-hmm. not trying to make some, you know, trophy winning international style wine to appeal to the American consumer. I think they have Italian wines are great and they'd have nothing to be ashamed of. And they, they don't need to make a Cabernet Sauvignon to prove anything. Right. Well, well me, you know, let me, let me, Mason. Let me, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay, hang go on. ahead, go ahead. So, Jackson, do you know enough about the original idea of the Super Tuscans? Was that their original con- concept? Was it because well, the, the way original. Jacob was talking about originally, it seemed like winemakers who were bored of a certain classification and wanted to try something else and then other people glommed on to the idea who definitely sound yeah. like they're doing what you're talking yeah, about, no. which is just trying to win. Yeah, no, I don't have any. Re- no, it's. I think it was a good idea at first, just to showcase the terroir of Tuscany. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it went too far. Okay. Um, and the thing is, the way they were breaking the rules isn't that they were changing the wine yields or blending different Italian grapes together. The way they were changing the rules is you're supposed to be using Sangiovese in a Tuscan wine, in a Chianti or a Chianti Classico. Chianti mm-hmm. should is required to be 80% Sangiovese, um, which is the main grape of Tuscany, same grape as Brunello as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they wanted to do was they wanted to play around with French varietals like Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, see how they work. The, the Bordeaux varietals that have that won California so much acclaim, that's what they wanted to do sure. in Italy. They did it. They produced great wine, and it got a lot of acclaim in the U.S. But to me, it's not particularly more interesting than a California Cabernet Sauvignon. And mm-hmm. the interesting thing about the Super Tuscan market, more so than much, almost all of the Italian market, 
is overwhelming majority of it is exported to the U.S. and the U.K. Mm-hmm. It's not Italians don't really want it as much. It's you. It's sort of it's sort of a banker steak wine in some ways. That that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, the, the Italians aren't saying like, oh, like thank you for producing this different thing that I'm going to enjoy. It's like no, no, no we sold it all to the Americans. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And chances are they, they have – you can generally trust the local market to some extent because they have better access to a, a wider variety of wines. So mm-hmm. so basically they tend to – my, my view is they tend – the local markets tend – a lot of the time tend to pick some of the better wines unless you're dealing with an area where people can't afford to pay for it. Italy has got a lot of economic problems, but there's a lot of rich Italians decking out way too much money. Mm-hmm. Right. Still. Right. Okay. If well, that makes sense. It, it, no, it, it does it make sense. Complete sense. Mm-hmm. But I've I've no problem with the concept as such. I just think it. You know, it, it's an aesthetic judgment and it's a personal thing. But I I tend to think that the world is more interesting. Wine is more interesting when you have more diversity in it, and not mm-hmm. as things are the same. That's that's my view. Well, I think that I think Mason and I would agree with that. Um, assessment. So uh, now that we've kind of covered all of what we are drinking, Mason, do you want to move on to the next topic? Let's go ahead and break from the wine. Yep. And continue on to more wine. <laughs> <laughs> and this is uh, so. This is a New Year's episode, and we didn't uh-huh. really we didn't really showcase that this was a like super strong New Year's episode. But this this is going to be released on. Um, the 31st or maybe the first um yeah i think the first the first yeah uh yeah you're right this will be there on the first so i've got a i've got an article that is from uh i guess a website called um hold on let me me pull it up real quick it's called the drink business.com yeah it's um it's a uk um uh liquor business uh, and wine business website they've got a lot of good info okay so they do yeah i I thought so too they had they had a lot of good info on this they have 2019 predictions and i'll go ahead and run through these and uh i'm gonna go ahead and get mason yours and then jackson Mm -hmm. yours predictions for 2019 in relation to wine and then i'll Mm -hmm. go ahead and do my relation to wine um this can be industry-wide or it can be personally Mm -hmm. all that fine i'm gonna go ahead and run through the things that they said on the article so on the article they said that in 2019 they think that cab franc is going to make a new comeback now jackson you know that i am a lover of cab franc and mason you know that i'm a lover of cab franc Uh this to me sounds like awesome news um jackson you pointed out to me that the loire valley say say it one more time uh loire loire so the loire valley makes great wine i've had two unbelievably great loire valley wines all good value like unbelievably good value i was paying 34 dollars a bottle for um for wine from California, but the Luray Valley wine. Loire. I, I'm sorry. What did I say? Loire. Loray. Loire. So Loire. So Loire. The Loire Valley wines that I got, and this is going to be showcased on the many episodes that I do when I review these two two wines. Um, just the quality of wine is so much better. Now, one of them was an older wine, 2010. The other one was a 2014. The 2014 was a little bit more aggressive but the 2010 was really very balanced so if i can get a little bit more from different places uh, besides france besides napa um, i think that this cabernet trend is going to be a really great deal for me personally so the other thing that they they showcase was that they think there's going to be a lot more diversity from south america so right now we've got um a lot of 
a lot of diversity from South from South, uh, South America, and it's mostly going to be like uh, Malbecs from Argentina or Carmenere from Chile. They think that we're going to get a lot more like uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, um, other Pinot other Pinot Noir, other little other red wines, other other white wines from South America. So that that's what they think that we're going to be getting from South America. They also think we're going to get a lot more um, indigenous, lesser known grapes from Italy. They think we're going to be getting. Um, a lot more vegan friendly grapes from the world. Now, what does Please vegan f- <laughs> Exactly. What is vegan what does vegan friendly mean? It's unclear, but vegan friendly, that seems to be something that's growing. I, what- I, I can explain it sadly. I wish I go, could go for it, Jackson. Tell it's me what in order to filter wine, the traditional method is um, part of the filtration system for wine, and you use it for hundreds and thousands of bottles of wine is a little bit of fish bladder is used in the traditional filtration system. It doesn't okay. get into the wine, you just use it to filter out stuff okay vegans are throwing a little hissy fit about something that's been used in like over a thousand bottles and they still wear leather shoes as far as i can tell most of them so (laughs) i I don't have that That makes sense shocks me is that fish actually have bladders (laughs) yeah like maybe it's like like the swim bladder or something i don't know oh okay okay. that makes more sense okay okay Uh, yeah i'm not a Expert in fish biology. Okay. Well, so for those of us Damn who are it, Jackson, listening, you're an expert in everything else. <laughs> no. For I those of be. for those of you that are listening that are vegans, I mean, you may be supporters. There's a lot of libertarians that are vegans, a lot of anarchists that are vegans. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're interested in vegan friendly wine, 2019 is going to be the year for you. Um, if Apparently. you're if you're more interested in something else, we've got another trend that according to uh, thedrinkbusiness.com, they're saying that Hungarian and Croatian wine is going to be producing like a, a much larger percentage or a much more readily available wine to Americans in particular and British in particular. Um, what do you think about that, Jackson? You know, Croatian oh, yeah. wine... I, I was actually, uh, this summer I was over in Hungary, so I got to try quite a bit of it. Oh, magnificent. Um, um, yeah, it was all around. So, but, um, no, but no, there's a lot of really good wine in Hungary mm-hmm. and actually it's different from what you would expect. You think central Europe, you think entirely colder, mm-hmm. but it, it's not entirely that they're actually producing, and this is not the majority of Hungarian wine, but I was surprised by this. They're producing a medium full body wine that can actually age quite a bit. That is, I, I had one and if I was given it blind, I would actually have thought it was an Italian wine because the summers are quite hot in Hungary on the Pannonian plain mm-hmm. and the Carpathian basin. Um, but I was surprised by the quality and then Tokai and then, um, and then the ferment grape in particular, which is traditionally the grape used for Tokai, which is a famous Hungarian dessert wine, Louis XIV's uh, favorite wine. They're producing a lot of still whites with that now. And it's actually the, the Hungarians say it's quite similar. It's maybe you could compare it across between Viognier, Chardonnay and Riesling. That would be the best way I would describe ferment. It has a lot of natural acidity. It's aromatic, but more kind of peach, apricot, like you would have in Viognier. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can actually take oak as well. So it has that Chardonnay-like quality to it as well. So so it's some of the best wine I've had is Hungarian. and uh, The best dessert wine in the world, in my opinion, is actually the Hungarian Tokai is just incredible. So Tokai. So I bought Victoria, my wife, uh, a dessert wine or a sweeter wine of Tokai this Christmas based on your recommendation, Jackson. Um, She loved it. 
So oh, great. it was, it was a, it's a much sweeter wine. I had a sip of it and honestly, I'm not a fan of sweet wines. This Tokai, if you guys are interested in it. It is just so complex. It is. It's very complex. It's very interesting. It's got a lot of like honey. If you like mead, it, it has a similarity in the aftertones of mead. Um, it, it's, it's very interesting. So I, I would say listeners, if you're interested in, in sort of central European Tokai, uh, go for it because it is even though they come in usually smaller bottles you're gonna get a much more interesting wine it's not an, it's not expensive at all um you can get one for 10 15 dollars um I, go ahead and go for it i on the 10 15 dollars for a tokai i i'd caution against that generally mm-hmm. um just because i think you want to pay at least uh, uh for half a bottle mm-hmm. I, I think you want to pay at least 2030 on the Tokai. Okay. Even judging by the prices in Hungary, I was surprised by the variance in quality. Okay. We are dealing with a former Eastern Bloc country. That's right. Uh, so makes well, sense. Yeah. It does make uh, sense. But, and but, actually, but you know, know but spe- I don't mean to disparage it. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, speaking- it's a little insulting, but um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's insulting. People doing really good stuff there, but they tend to price their wine upwards of twenty dollars a bottle. Okay. Uh, well, but you can get a really good Hungarian white for fifteen dollars mm-hmm. or ten dollars easily okay and it increase and it's going to become cheaper because of the stronger dollar compared to the euro mm-hmm. and the hungarian i can't believe i forgot their currency whatever the hell <laughs> it is whatever it is yeah well you know that's interesting because i end up buying a 30 bottle a 30 dollar bottle of uh tokai that uh-huh. was um it, it is it's about a half a bottle actually I, yeah. I would say it's probably less than half a bottle of wine um, Victoria loved it. There were a couple of others cheaper bottles available because it was a Christmas gift. I bought her the more expensive. So if Jackson, if you're recommending a slightly more expensive than $15, $20 bottle, I bought a thir- uh, it was a $30 bottle at Total Wine. Go talk to one of the uh, I guess the, they're not sommeliers, but the, the wine suggester people that are there. Go ahead and go with what they recommend. You know, $30, it's it's not that much more expensive and you can you can get a, quite a bit of a higher quality. Yeah, and, and remember dessert wine and sweeter wine is generally not a mm-hmm. it's not a, you know, a weekday wine. It's something you right. kind of reserve for a special occasion after a nice meal. Exactly. So. And, and and you so, know what when I was on the uh Friends Against Government podcast, they they asked me what recommend what wine I recommended to them and I recommended that they buy their loved ones a dessert wine because most people won't buy themselves a dessert wine, but most exactly. people most people like a dessert wine. So they mm-hmm. They like a sweet port. They like, you know, an, a, a very sweet ice wine. They like all of these different types of sweeter wines, but because of the stigma of a sweet wine, they won't buy it for themselves. It's a great gift. Go for it. Well, so I'll I'll mention, because I haven't had a chance to tell you this, Jacob, I was shouting at you the entire time mm-hmm. you were suggesting wines mm-hmm. because, like, Carminari didn't come up like these right. these uh, more obscure wines that you and I really enjoy mm-hmm. um and I mean obscure for us mm-hmm. like and I was just like damn it <laughs> Like it was, it was very funny because like I was just thinking it's like I gotta remember these things I gotta talk to him about these right. like not because like I it's not because you failed in some way but like you know like when we're presenting ourselves it's like we you know you and I always have this tendency where it's like do we go really weird with this and like mm-hmm. bizarre or do we do the normal like yeah we get it we're we're weird freaking guys like <laughs> but we understand that so here's our our temperance or do we go like. Oh yeah, here's this here's this wine wine grape you haven't heard of uh, yeah. that 
everyone else in the world has heard of. You know, I, I say go I go for the weird. There's a million there's it, a million well, people telling everyone to drink this Chardonnay and that Chardonnay. Yeah. Well, you know what, Jackson? Jackson, this is a good way to bring it back. Is that one of the recommendations they had is Hungarian and Croatian. One of the Croatian wines that is um, less known, I guess, is the is Zinfandel. And you and I have talked about this a little bit on Twitter. Is Zinfandel is actually um, from Croatia, Austria, that region. Uh, they're, the Dalmatian coast, right? Dalmatia. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and they they call it something different there. I'm not exactly sure what it is. You may know. Um, but one of the things that they recommend is that we're going to get more wines from Croatia. What are some of the, the Zinfandel comparisons? And I don't want to put you on the spot if you don't remember exactly, but Zinfandel is a very notoriously California wine, but it's not only from California. It's, it's a wine grape that is from Europe. And what is it that we are going to expect from Croatia? Uh, so this is this will this may surprise you, maybe not. I've actually I don't I don't remember having a Croatian wine before, and I've had wine from a lot of very okay. obscure places. Um, so I I can't tell you I can't mm-hmm. give you an honest enough assessment. Uh, what I can tell you is I've had a lot of um, the Zinfandel equivalent from Puglia in Italy. Um, mm-hmm. So I can tell you, which is called Primitivo in Italian. And that's the main mm-hmm. region outside of California that's producing mm-hmm. Zinfandel is the Puglia region. So it's the, the you know, it's the south, uh, eastern tip of the boot, kind of out in the direction of Greece, right? Okay. In Italy. Um, very hot for Italy. So you actually get some very high alcohol wines out there. Um, but you'll you'll actually see a lot in common with California, but you get a bit more ca- Italian characteristics, mm-hmm. largely by, maybe by winemaker process. They're less likely to use a ton of new oak. You're more likely to get a bit more mm-hmm. acidity, but you're still getting that sort of jamminess that you might get in the lesser ones. But in the, the better ones, you're getting a balanced wine with a lot of nice red fruit coming through. You might even get a little herbal flavor. But I I was talking to this one guy who was who was talking to one of the, the top Primitivo maker, and his wine got his the year got so hot and he made a really good wine but it mm-hmm. actually got and i was shocked by this to 17 percent alcohol on a still red wine which holy is just cow wow i mean because like the, the most i've had on that a still intense. red wine is like 15 percent. 15 percent might be 16.5 though. i was say we had a 14.9 that we we definitely thought was in the higher than that yeah yeah mm-hmm. they, they love lying about this yeah i mean that that's unbelievable and i guess if you allow it to ferment up you know to consume all of the sugar yeah you're gonna get to that point but this is this must have been a very warm year where the, like the grape was allowed to produce like an extreme amount of sugar well yeah and it's a perfect climate for just ripening things because during the summer it's dry it's 90 degree over 90 90 92 every day you mm-hmm. got the coastal mm-hmm. breeze so you're not getting anything so you're getting grapes ripened pretty well and the nights actually cool down quite a bit in italy uh, which shocks some yeah uh, because it's actually italy's not as humid in the south as people think it is mm-hmm. so you're it's, it was actually according to this guy a very balanced wine you, it was just shocking to hear the amount of alcohol yeah. they got on this was I, I'd, I'd be very, very interested to try that. I've, I've had quite a few Italians lately that I think are, um, you know, I, I don't know for sure that America is, I guess, prejudiced against Italian wines, but I've had a, several Italian wines lately that, like, I think, honestly, awesome flavor, very complex. More. I think America might, at the moment, it spends more money on Italian wine than French wine. Really? Okay. 
Well, okay. I think there's a huge, the there's just a huge Italian American diaspora. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's well, a I, portion of not only not only that, but I think it's also the perception of the Italian restaurant compared to the French restaurant. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah pizzeria, yeah. like yeah. the the cheap the, Italian restaurants that France don't... France is going to make a massive comeback to go yeah. into predictions. Okay. Uh, and it's already starting to. Italy has been big since sort of the late '80s, early '90s, where you started having regional Italian food. Italian food got much better in the U.S. Whereas French food and French wine kind of for a time in, in, you know, I'm generalizing on trends before I remember, obviously, Um, Mm -hmm. for a time, though, you know, you know, Italian became trendy. It was, you know, more hip to drink Italian wine amongst the, you know, like certain areas of certain groups of people. Watching Um, a lot of the food shows, like Italian basis for the food that these like, you know, like Hell's Kitchen and like these like you know fix my failing restaurant like italian was the basis for a lot of these restaurants exactly and i think we're getting tired of it i think france is going to make a huge comeback because france has so much to offer and americans have this very silly view of the french okay Um, well you know what you know what jackson speaking of the french the next prediction for the drink business is that lesser known french varietals are going to be making a comeback in 2019 i'm a hundred Hundred percent with that. That okay. That that that's very interesting. So they they had they had several that they were talking about. Um, do you have any that you predict in particular that you think are going to be making a comeback? Le- like lesser known varietals. They already spoke I, about Cabernet Franc. I think the Languedoc Roussillon region mm-hmm. is going to see a lot, a lot of increases in terms of quality, and that was traditionally the wine lake of France. They just produce so much wine there. That's you know the long. That's basically on the border with um, Catalonia in Spain, right? Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Not the Basque border, but um, on the other side of the Pyrenees, sure. on the Mediterranean. That's it, where actually, for a lot from of France, the Provence. majority of wine was produced in France, and a lot was bulk wine. But we're starting to see a lot of, you know, a lot of people. Last when I was in Paris, I, I was talking to a winemaker from there, and he, you know, he lived it. He worked in Australia. He worked in Burgundy, and he went back to, you know, his family vineyards, and is now making really good quality wine in this region that was traditionally thought of as a bad region but there, there's mountains there's hills there's altitude there's sea there's everything you need for a good region it's just the quality standards were down for a right. while so long doc roussillon i think is gonna and they are producing good heavy they're producing heavy reds that can age and are good with steak and americans love that well that that is exactly the um what this article was predicting as well is that they were thinking that um not exactly to compete with a rioja but along the same line Heavier reds, heavier reds, not necessarily more alcohol, but more of a complex red flavor. Um, Drier, more Very dry, exactly. Uh, Man, Jackson, you are just, you are on the ball. <laughs> I, 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 we, I love having you on. It's not my. It was not on top of things. I mean, you know what's going on though with French wines. Even though you're working on impl- importing uh, Galatian and Portuguese wines, it's a passion. I just like. Yeah. I like it. I don't Man. have to. I don't have to. You know, have a business interest. Although I do. Yeah. I should be able to speak about it. But I. I, I enjoy it. So. Oh, man, it's it's, really it's so great to have you on because you do exactly the passion of Jackson Blood. The Jackson mm-hmm. Blood Wine Variety Hour would be awesome, but you know what? If you're if you're not willing, no, 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 no. Let's, let's... <laughs> so this is this is the thing that I've been like mulling in my head of like mm-hmm. how to set up the Jackson Blood Wine Subscription Service, where it's just the 
Like, you know, this is the price point. Like, there's no, you know, eventually, obviously, there'll be tears, but, like, there's just the, this is what I'm drinking, this is what you're getting. Like, yeah. there's no, oh, I like whites, I like reds. No, just this is yeah, the man. monthly thing. This is yeah. the cost. Here you go. And I, one thing, I, I'd love to just go on a little tangent. Um, go for maybe it. Maybe we don't want this in the podcast, but maybe it's fine. Um, just because I wanted to discuss a little of the, the plan for the uh, how I want to structure the business with you. Just explain mm-hmm. a little. That go for it. Is what my goal is eventually is what I really want to do, and I think I mentioned this before, is to cut out the middleman of kind of the distributors who are really marking up the price in the retail. I don't have problems with them. The distributors I do because they're a government licensed monopoly designed to mm-hmm. increase prices. So I, I have problems with them. But what I want to do is I want to go to the producer in Europe, buy it directly from him, and through a website and through shipping intermediaries, which increasingly in the U.S. there's some problems, but I'm in Washington State, which has very liberal shipping laws and very liberal wine laws. Okay. Um, be able to ship it directly to the consumer from a producer in Europe and be able to put on a 30, 30, 40% savings for a much higher quality wine compared to this whole huge network. And luckily, wine laws are opening up enough, so I just might be able to squeeze into there. So that's... You know what, that's Jackson? That's amazing. It is amazing. And that's a. I think that's a, like that's just unbelievably awesome. And I will revisit that with you when I am much more sober. All right, so the other thing that the, the drink business brought up was that they think that we're going to be having lesser known varietals from South America. So Mason, you and I have done Carmenere from uh, Chile. We've done mm-hmm. uh, Malbec from uh, Argentina. Mm-hmm. They think that there's going to be a larger amount of un. I wouldn't say unknown, but lesser known varietals from South America that are combinations um, of of varietals that work very well in South America. Now, South America has a really interesting terroir. Uh, one of the things that they have is it does tend to be more humid, but because like in Chile, for example, there is a huge difference between Chile on the coast and Chile in the mountains. You've got dry, uh, dry climate, dry wines versus humid climate, humid wines. So, mm-hmm. Mason, this is one of the things that they're saying is that a larger varietal from South America, you and I don't know a huge amount of the varietals that they grow there. Jackson, do you know anything else that they're growing in South America that could, like, I guess, expound upon what this article is saying about the different varietals that are going to be coming out of South America? Yeah. Ecuador. Yeah, so South America, actually, the few, the two, the most obvious countries in South America and pretty much what most people will have. Mm-hmm. is uh, Chilean and Argentine wine, which actually differ quite a bit in terms of the climate, in terms of the overall geography of the place. Absolutely. Chile, mm-hmm. Chile has much more to do with a very long California, if you will, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very mountainous. The Andes yeah. put the Sierra foothill, the Sierra Mountains, which are n- by no means small to shame. You know, the Andes go up 23,000 feet. Absolutely. You know, Mason and I have both had Carmenere from, Arge- or from uh, Chile, and I am a big fan of Carmenere. Carmenere from Chile, but it is very hit or miss because it, yeah. it's such a long country. They all do Carmenere, and Carmenere can be very, very good or it can be very bad. And yeah, it, I actually, yeah, I tend, I've had with Carmenere, I actually haven't bought it for quite a few years. I've had a lot of bad experiences with it. Okay. 
Um, I know they're doing a better job. I just mm-hmm. Chile is not an area of expertise. I think it's a fascinating country. I'd love to try more wines from there. Okay, uh, but I've actually I've had a lot more success with the the Cabernet Sauvignon from Chile. To really? be completely honest, yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, the the one thing which is really cool about Chile, which is completely different from ninety nine point nine percent of wine regions in the world, the the other exception to that is the island of uh, Santorini in Greece. Is that Chile is so isolated because of the Andes and because of that uh, horrible high altitude desert where everything dies. Mm-hmm. Um, the Phylloxera bug never reached Chile and has never reached Chile. So all the grapes there are planted on ungrafted grapes like was done in Europe all the way up until the late 1800s. So it's one of the last holdouts of that very traditional winemaking practice because the bugs can't make it over the mountains. Wow. That, wow. That, I mean, that's very interesting. And I'm actually a big fan of Chilean wine. Uh, not Chilean wine, actually. Specifically Carmenere and specifically certain years of Carmar. Carmenere, um, mm-hmm. or com- say it again, Jackson. It's a uh, Carmenere. It's actually Carmenere. It's originally it was originally the lost grape of Bordeaux. They thought it, really? it was completely extinct, mm-hmm. and Carmenere was marketed as Merlot up until the eighties, and they did a genetic test and found out that it was actually this grape that, the, that was the long lost grape that was used to be a central part of Bordeaux blends that they thought was extinct, but it was most of the wine in Chile that was called Merlot was actually Carmenere because some mm-hmm. um, you know somebody brought cuttings to, to Chile probably in the 18th 19th century okay so that's super interesting because I've always thought that compared to Merlot I'm not a huge fan of Merlot but compared to Merlot Carmenere or Carmen Carmenere Carmen- Sorry. Carmenere? Sorry. Am I saying? Carmenere. Carmenere. Okay. So the Carmenere is uh, typically a lot more peppery and a little bit more tannic than what I would expect from Merlot. Yeah. And and part of that too is the Merlots you're having. The Merlots you're having, I I would imagine, Mm -hmm. are primarily California, if I'm correct. That's probably correct. Yeah. Um, and so what California Merlot and, um, you might've, you know, the movie sideways actually completely destroyed, it completely destroyed the Merlot industry Mm -hmm. in California. It's hilarious. Um, but basically they were going for Merlot in a big, smooth kind of velvety style, even though Merlot is naturally a, actually much more tannic grape than say a Pinot Noir or a lot of grapes are. So naturally Merlot should be relative. It should be relatively close to Cabernet Sauvignon. And if you have some examples of very good right bank Bordeaux, you know, they can age, you know, just as long as the the left bank Bordeaux that's Cabernet Sauvignon, Mm -hmm. you know, that that, that actually changes my opinion a lot of Merlot because I've never been a huge fan of Merlot. Yeah. Yeah. I I had to get over Merlot prejudice as well. Yeah, well, you know, I've always thought it was a much more delicate wine, much more along the lines of Pinot Noir, although I do like Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley or, you know, different Oregon wines. Um, I've always... I, I I would say it's it's a... I've always thought of it was a more generic grape, more of a... It's funny because I like Merlot. <laughs> really? Okay, okay. That's interesting because I always thought of it as a wine that was more like generic more like this is red wine flavor not yeah. more like a specific so your, your, flavor your taste and your your assessment of merlot is, is what i used to have as well mm-hmm. that's actually very typical my father thinks the same way mm-hmm. uh, um but that's very typical of a certain wine consumer in the u.s the 
um, a lot of American wine consumers, particularly the better educated ones on wine and okay. people willing to maybe put a bit more into it, mm -hmm. became very snobbish on Merlot because they thought of it as softer, a bit more chocolatey, mm -hmm. right? But, okay. you know, but most of these people, if you said, if you had offered them a bottle of Pomerol or if you want to go fully crazy, a bottle of Petrus, which retails at 3000 a bottle. Wow. Um, okay. That is entirely Merlot and that is right bank Bordeaux. And, you know, Pomerol is considered a very high end wine as well. No, most people just don't make that connection mm -hmm. that these really high-end French wines are made of Merlot because they think Bordeaux and they want to you know, they want to pretend it's all Cabernet Sauvignon. It's mostly blends, but there's some that are 100% Merlot, mm -hmm. particularly uh, the Chateau the Petrousse, which is just you know a crazy label, one of the, a top 10 you know wine wines in the world. If you're looking at you know the historic prestige of them, you know Merlot gets an unfair rep, but it also gets it also deserves it because a lot of people were making really crappy Merlot. So okay, all right, <laughs> all right, all right, all right. that makes sense, and uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and give. Merlot another try, especially if it's Merlot from France or Merlot from maybe a, diff a different region. You know, Jackson, you and I, we talk a lot on Twitter, so maybe I'll, I'll go ahead and, and uh, I guess revisit Merlot because I've, I've thought of it as kind of a crappy California varietal. But... Most of the time you're right, though. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I... you know, I've, I've had actually a really... Um... Do you know Ridge Vineyards in California? Do you I, do, I don't know. They I actually don't. make a really good Merlot. Um, they make a really good full-bodied Merlot that shows the proper characteristics of the grape. That goes for around thirty-eight, forty. It's not cheap, but I think that's a really – if you want to get an idea, that's fair. And then the other thing I would say is Pomerol and Bordeaux um, okay. is another way. But most of the time, I think that's the correct assessment. Okay, so, so – I'm going to add that to my list and, you know, Mason, you and I maybe will try that Ridge Vineyard or Ridge, Ridge Vineyards, is it Jackson? Yeah, Ridge. They, they, okay. They've kind of pioneered a lot of different grape varieties in California and okay. they, they so, do a good job and they make right. it relatively democratic, which I, I appreciate. Okay. Well, Mason, you and I should maybe revisit that or maybe we'll revisit with you, Jackson, on uh, on the show at some point. I've got, a, I've got a couple of other episode ideas in mind with you on. Uh -huh. Um so maybe we'll go ahead and revisit Merlot with with the very knowledgeable Jackson Blood. Um, yes. Let's go ahead and, and go to the last item that is on the drinkbusiness.com. This particular article, they predict, and this is a an area of wine that I do not consider a part of wine, but an area that our good friend Nate Bitza considers part of wine. Um, that is rice wine. Right. They are expecting that rice wine is going to be making a huge uh, advance in 2019. I have never considered rice, rice wine as part of normal wine, mostly because I consider rice wine sort of on the level of liquor. I, I yeah, in the process is actually I'm I'm actually I'm really with you on this. Um, okay. Um, but I don't, I don't have anything against sake or rice wine in general, but I, I if don't, you look at yeah. the process of, of making rice wine, essentially what you're doing is you're making an incredibly high alcohol beer. Exactly. And that, that is the exact same, that almost exactly the same process in my thinking as what you have. Mason, have you had a, have you had sake or a rice wine that you didn't have the same thought process on? I'm sorry. One more time. So one of the things that like, so Nate. Nate Tupitza, our good friend, who has been mm -hmm. on the episode or on the show very several or several times, um, he is a big fan of rice wine. And one of my big problems with rice rice wine is that I feel like it's a very very high alcohol content version of beer. 
I don't really consider it a wine in the same way that I don't consider barley wine a version of wine. Yeah, yeah, um, I think that's correct. Yeah, um, I, I, I had it, I actually had a sake um, right before I left Seattle two weeks ago. I went to the big Japanese store there. Okay, and I was bored, and and the the darkness in Seattle was making me go a little stir crazy. So one night I decided, <laughs> fuck it, I'm going to buy a live eel and cook. Japanese food, so yeah. I mean, it, why not? It, it can be good in the sense of Japanese yeah. cuisine. I, 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 yeah, I used it for cooking, but I always right. keep giving sake another try. Mm-hmm. In my experiences with sake are either, you know, I've had a few bad experiences where you go out for sushi and you, you have way too much of it. Yeah. Or like, or you have it and you're like, meh. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I, like I feel. Experience. And I really want to like it, but uh-huh. I've just struggled to like it. I feel the same way about sake as I feel about rice beers with like Sapporo. Um, yeah, Sapporo is rice beer. Y- yeah, I'm, ex- I'm, 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 I am a I am a complete philistine when it comes to beer. So. <laughs> okay, well, you know, Mason and I can kind of fill that gap a little yeah. bit. I've always thought the Sapporo was a inferior beer. It has a lesser flavor. It it's not as complex. That may be inaccurate, but no, it- no, 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 that's completely true. <laughs> um, okay, um, no, no, I know about beer. It just one thing you'll find, which is completely inter- which is actually really interesting, is like my tasting beer when i have it i like lager and i like sour beer okay oh see, see sours Just, see sours i think mason you me and jackson can probably agree on sours i love i love sours. sours make me okay. so happy mason you want to you want to add into that well so what i what i'll say is like with sapporo it's actually an american beer it's not brewed in japan it's okay. not japanese all right like um How so it's, a, it's a premium lager made in the state in the japanese style oh, and, oh i guess they have a they have a separate brewery in the u.s i bet mm-hmm. okay yeah so but it, it's produced in the japanese style which is much more like light beer yeah but yeah. it's not because it's a lagered a full lagered beer but like for me for rice wine the few times i've had it it's more like vodka like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like it's 20 percent alcohol to me it's yeah. just watered down vodka yeah so yeah. and that's the thing thing is like american vodka is super filtered that takes away a lot of the complexity of vodka so like people who have been to eastern europe and and had actual different varietal vodkas like they have a like different taste like the idea with vodka in the united states is they're trying to refine it to such the point where you could almost not get a hangover drinking it because they're mm-hmm. removing so many impurities from it right but that takes away a lot of the flavor so like, the few times i've had sake it's like it's to me i always thought it was like jet fuel like it's so mm-hmm. alcohol yeah. But, you know, Jacob, like my favorite beer is the 120 minute from Dogfish Head, which mm-hmm. got banned in Virginia because of its alcohol content varied from 19 to 22 percent. Got some real Puritans running your liquor policy. <laughs> you know what? Well, if, we're if, common. We're only one of four. So, well, you yeah. know, what? And, and if you guys go back and listen to the um, new the uh, Christmas episodes, the Ghost of Christmas Past was uh, mm-hmm. Rick Caldwell. He kind of goes into that a little bit is that we have in Virginia. We, I mean, I live in Texas now, but we, as in Virginians, have these kind of very obscure liquor laws that are that go back to prohibition. It, it's a very unusual. Um, I love. I, I've never lived there, but Virginia history is fascinating. It really yeah. is. It really is. And you know, Virginia did preserve a lot of the grapes for wine and stuff like that. But at the same time. Well, similar to Texas, actually, they they had a lot of holdouts for 
um, the Prohibition era laws. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that's the the influence of D.C., Richmond, and then Hampton Roads area where mm-hmm. I live compared to the rest of Virginia. Like it, yeah. it skews politics so bizarrely. But I think we have gone quite far on this drinks prediction. So mm-hmm. I think, Jacob, um, we need to quickly do mainly because I need to get to bed. But um, <laughs> the prediction from us for the year that's uh, true coming politics wine and other yeah so so the last item i guess that we're going to do for the, the the i guess the closing statement for this particular um episode is what is your prediction for let's say politics and also do you have a prediction jackson I, i'm 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 gauging this this question to you do you have a prediction for popular wines popular um Popular wines in particular. And then secondarily, do you have a prediction for politics in 2019? You know, Trump is the president at the moment. He does have a lot of really interesting things going on. I've seen you on Twitter. You have a lot of really interesting takes on that. Um, What is your prediction for 2019? Let's go ahead and go with Trump first and and your wine second. Yeah, Trump first. Yeah. I, if I could predict Trump, I would, you know, a uh, billionaire. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting to me is that a, a few narratives have kind of changed at the end of the year. For me, the most important issue is, as a matter of fact, foreign policy. So I, I'm quite happy with some of the direction that it's going, but I'm a little, I'm not too jubilant about it yet because what I, when I look at is I see, you know, I look at the administration, I see the people advising him. I think he made the right call for sure. I'm a very strong non-interventionist. You mean in in specifically in Syria? In Syria, I okay. I would have pulled. You know, I wouldn't have entered there. In sure. Afghanistan, I I don't think he went goes is going far enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. By far, you know, I think we need to take them all out tomorrow. Um, yes, but but. So I'm very, I'm reasonably optimistic about it in that I think that there's a change in direction going on. But at the same time, what I'm looking at is John Bolton's still in charge. Yeah. He's talking about Secretary of State. Of course, he's, you know, a, a Secretary of Defense. He's a bit better than Mattis on implementing these policies, but he's not great. He's a Republican, maybe not the most hawkish of them, but mm-hmm. I don't know about it. But what will be interesting to see is what the in the in terms of politics and in terms of foreign policy. The most important thing is relationship with Israel and Saudi yeah. Arabia. And I'm and if Trump and if they Trump manages to conflict with them, then I'm very optimistic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if they manage to get Trump back through flattery or whatever method, then I think we could we we should really keep our guards up. We should celebrate when he does something good. We should encourage him, say you're the best when you take troops out, but we should always be vigilant. And I think I'm a little worried, particularly looking at libertarian Twitter and myself included, I was celebrating for a bit that we we could let our guard down on this issue and we could be in a very bad situation because the iran hawks are still hitting the war drum just as hard yeah mm-hmm. well you know what jackson that seems like a very sober um <laughs> assessment mason what do you think about that so i don't think anything that jackson said is uh incorrect um but i think it's 2019 i think trump is trump is going to be beginning to run for election this year Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So he's been I, running since he got elected. Yes and no. You're wrong. You're, um, wrong. Or you're I, not I wrong. He, you're not wrong. Yeah. So I think he hit the ground running, but 
he finally figured out that like, oh, there's actually business to do. Because one of the things that like you see with people like Trump is they don't run the day to day very much anymore. And so Trump didn't realize that he had to run the government and not put people in charge who were going to do what he wanted. Mm -hmm. So what I think we're going to see this year is actually and so jacob this is a yeah uh 95 long shot sure federal decriminalization of marijuana completely mm-hmm. I, I think that's i think that's certainly within the realm of possibility yeah, i think so I, I think trump trump has two trump cards in theory to win re-election the 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 trade war with china is not going any way with any which way he thought he's not going to do war in a um Iran because it, he's just not going to spend the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the military he, doesn't want to either. It's just sure. Some do, some don't, but like Bolton and the other crazies, like I wouldn't put it past them right. to a, a Bol- Bolton. If Bolton had the chance, he'd, he'd declare yeah. war. Absolutely. I, Absolutely. I, so I wouldn't put it past them to actually arrange Americans to die, um, to trigger Trump to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think is going to happen is Trump is going to pull this card, which I don't know necessarily know if he needs to or not, but he's going to basically go, well, what's going to get the youth vote, which he thinks is going to be a big vote mm-hmm. is kind of my thought process. And he's just going to be like, well, let's decriminalize marijuana because I can't legalize gay marriage. And I'm not like I've, you know, if he could have, he would have done something like Obamacare, you know, sure. just to like, oh, these people are poor and dumb. Like I'll give them health care. But like the groundswell that marijuana has at this point in this country and the fact that the farm bill just legalized hemp. Like, mm-hmm. I can imagine Trump just going to be like, you know, dicks on the mm-hmm. table. Like, I just said, you know, complete decriminalization. And, you know, when Nancy Reagan told um, Reagan to criminalize ecstasy and they did it within six months, I think Trump's going to be like, oh, yeah, you know how she did that? Yeah, I'm just completely de- decriminalizing marijuana, right. especially with Sessions out. Yeah, I, I could see that, too. That, that That's a good assessment, Mason. I think Jackson I, is correct also, though. Um I can see, you know what, I I guess it just depends on like now with Sessions out and with um, Mattis out, let's see what happens, I guess, with the the group of people that are in charge of advising. He he doesn't seem to me to have a complete grasp, at least philosophically, on what's going on to Mm -hmm. be able to... He's not a very, I hate to say, he's an intuitive person. Exactly. He's not a bright bright individual. Yeah, I don't think he's read a book. I don't think he's seriously read a book in his life, frankly. I, I, I very much agree with that. He is very much an intuitive person. Um, to kind of redirect this to the wine aspect of it mm-hmm. is I see that uh, Trump is going to sort of pony up a little bit to the Turks. And we're going to see a lot more Turkish wine coming into the U.S. market at a cheaper rate. Now, Jackson, I think you and I have talked a little bit about yeah. this on oh. Twitter. This- what See, do you this think? Is, this is an insane opportunity, I have to admit. Exactly. It's an interesting opportunity. What do you think the Turks have to, produ- or to I guess, present to the U.S. market, especially with um, 
the not necessarily lax trade policy, but a, a trade policy that's a little bit more favorable to the Turks as opposed to some of the other Middle Eastern countries? Well, the U.S. has always had a relatively favorable trade policy with Turkey. If you're looking at wine tariffs, wine tariffs compared to other tariffs are actually quite minimal, especially if you're talking in terms of anything higher than the low-end market. The, mm-hmm. the tax per liter on wine imports is about 18 cents, which I'd rather not pay it, but as far mm-hmm. as taxes go, it's pretty minimal. Um, so I, I'm, that isn't as much the cons- as much the benefit. The benefit mm-hmm. is how much the lira has just fallen. Oh, okay. Is that it's one third the rate of what it used to be compared to the U.S. dollar. If you know one dollar gets you know just you know one dollar gets you three dollars of wine, mm-hmm. math is pretty goddamn simple. Okay. Um, and the other factor is there's two other factors as well, and I, this is why I think Turkey's gonna. You know, this is why I'm looking into Turkey. Hopefully, I haven't said enough <laughs> shit about Erdogan on Twitter, so I'm in prison there if I go. Uh, but in general, there's an opportunity because Erdogan is. He's a Muslim. He mm-hmm. wants to discourage drinking. He's not never going to ban alcohol. Sure. That's not how Turkey works. I've talked to Turks. Turks like to drink. Yeah. Um, but he's going to increase the taxes so it becomes more of a luxury good. Mm-hmm. The wealthy Turks are going to the wealthy secular Turks are going to want to keep their vineyards. They view making wine as a symbol of maybe Ataturk in the ancient Greek history. That that's how the Turks view it. Yeah. So they're going to keep their vineyards, and the vineyard quality has actually increased massively, despite the fact that Erdogan has been encouraged, uh, has been putting more taxes, and partially because of the fact that the Turkish, most of the Turkish wine and most of the Turkish liquor actually used to be state controlled when the government was more secular, mm-hmm. and Erdogan privatized a lot of it. You know, not for the right reason, but because he didn't want the state involved. He didn't want the state involved with anything that isn't very Muslim. But right. he did privatize a lot of it, which has improved quality significantly despite the fact that taxes are high. Okay. Other thing is taxes don't apply if it's exported. So the Turks are going to want to export more and more of it, discourage consumption at home to increase morality and the quality has increased. And if you can get it for one third the price, you know, the, of what the lira used to be, then it's, you know, quite a good opportunity across the board. Huh. Okay. That makes it, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, that's kind of the, the prediction for 2019 that I have. Mason, you may want to, you may want to chime in on this. I think that like Turkish wines um some middle eastern wines that we don't expect may be presenting themselves in in 2019 because there are a lot of vineyards in middle eastern countries that we don't think of um particularly lebanon. turkey uh and lebanon's also, the best lebanon's still the best lebanon okay so maybe then israel produces some but you mm-hmm. know Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it, most of the Israeli wine is actually, the best Israeli wine is actually produced in the Golan Heights, which is occupied Syrian territory. Okay. Fun fact. Th- I mean, that makes it, sense to me. Uh, Mason, do you have any sort of opinion on this, or do you want to just go ahead and pass on to the next topic? So, I have two opinions. I think uh, this year there's going to be a shooting war with Greece, so I don't think Turkish wine are going to make the United States at all. Okay. Um, yeah, I think the I think there's going to be a shooting war in Greece because Erdogan has backed himself into a corner. Um he's not going to push the Russians in Syria. Um and I don't think they like everyone keeps saying we're going to screw the Kurds over and I think that's true, but I don't think he's going to be able to incur into Syria cuz he, he, Erdogan he's he's of two minds. He's Muslim, so he wants to, you know, purge the country of a lot of these things. So I wouldn't be surprised if he actually ripped out the vineyards mm-hmm. directly. Um, but also he's been pushing war with Greece. Okay. And much more than the US mili- the US media has been pushing. Like he's 
there's been some active confrontations. So I can are see a talking, fight. Are you talking? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Sure. I don't. No, no, no. Go for uh, it. Are you talking more the Northern Cyprus conflict or Greece? No, straight, can, straight other islands that they say are their territory, and Greece? they've been. Yeah, I, I like, have, like I am completely clueless on this. The problem there is they're both NATO allies. They're both. Yeah, and, and so that's the thing is like so I think what's going to happen is Trump is going to see he's going to get stuck between a rock and a hard place mm-hmm. um, because there's a very big Greek population in the United States um, and Greece is seen as such a weak player and Turkey is seen as such a violent extremist place at this point at least that's my perspective from the US uh, media um, so I don't think Turk like I would love to see Turkish wines in the country um, but I don't think that's going to happen because I think a shooting war is going to start in Greece or there's going to be just the weird tensions, um, which is going to shoot down a lot of the deals and also Trump's trade policy. Like he's trying to bring Turkey into line in weird ways. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's going to be some weird aspects there. But I think this is going to be a big year for uh, Georgian wines. That's Um, exactly what I was going to predict. Yeah, because I think Georgia's perched at that point where the Russians don't care enough about pushing Georgia back under their thumb from the media standpoint. Like, I don't really think the Russians care that much about Georgia either way. At this point, they've got other fish to fry. Um, but I think Georgia is set in the, you know, the with the dollar strengthening and presuming we don't hit a depression, which is kind of likely. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Georgian wines offer such a huge... Um, such a huge discount because yeah. it's you know just of its location there's a lot of easy access in and out of georgia um you know in through russia out you know all the places around georgia um so i think georgia we're going to see a huge in, huge influx of georgian wine and then jacob and i are going to be for, featuring georgian wines because i'm going to somehow contrive us to do that so. well that's actually no, georgia, very, go ahead I, I, go ahead jackson i'd add one thing to that is georgian food in general has been having a big uh like if you pay attention to to kind of like the, a lot of the food journals and stuff georgian food has been getting a lot more attention in the u.s mm-hmm. in the past few mm-hmm. years so i think that i think more so than trade policy more so than anything else i think that trend could really push it over the edge because the cost of producing wine in Georgia. It's a country with a per capita income of six thousand. Mm-hmm. It's not a land there is cheap. I was I wanted to go. I was like, oh, how much would it cost to stay in Georgia? I found a decent Airbnb for eleven bucks a night. Wow. Mm-hmm. It's a cheap place. So the cost of labor and the cost of wine is going to remain low. The question is what kind of quality they can mm-hmm. can they produce? And I think they're increasing their quality, but I think it's going to take a little bit longer for them to get to real European levels of quality. Mm-hmm. Um, well and, and that's the thing is I don't necessarily disagree i think georgian georgia produces quality that's on par maybe even better than europe but i think the the volume of that production is so low that it's just not accessible so well, like they, most georgian wine is consumed domestically and a lot yeah, of it exactly. isn't actually like I, I i want it to be high quality and i love mm-hmm. the history of it and all but frankly i've, I've tried it some of it's mm-hmm. quite good i've had a few really good bottles but a lot of it is simple country wine that isn't using the most refined methods and is meant to be drunk in a big chug out of a ram's horn. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, you know, that, that's those dinners, sort of... Those dinners you those, have to drink. They look like a lot of fun, I have to admit. That's sort of the same prediction that I had, that Mason had, is that I think that I'm going to... that we're going to see a lot more Armenian, a lot more Georgian yeah. wines entering the market. Um, 
mo- like Saparavi, uh, Rakitiskeli, those types of varietals that we haven't seen really in the West as much. And and I don't think it's necessarily because of trade policy. I think it's because of this like end of the um, the bubble that we're writing is I think mm-hmm. that people are getting more and more interested in the uh, the obscure, the more unusual, the more the esoteric. Yeah, the esoteric, yeah. like the unusual varieties. And you've got Armenia, you've got Georgia, you've got Croatia, you've got uh, Moldova. Yeah, exactly. You've got all these places producing these varietals that are very unusual, and I think that is going to present itself. Now, not necessarily in as big of a way as France, as big of a way as Italy, um, as big of a way as Napa, but I think that we're going to see some more introduction of both of those, um, Armenia, Georgia, uh, Central, Central Asia, I guess um, even 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 places like Azerbaijan, um, we might see a little bit more of that in America before we hit the precipice of this depression. So yes. I I I actually my prediction politically is that Trump is going to be able to hold this off until the end of his presidency. Uh, I think we're like my view is I think we're likely to see a recession in the next year. I'm not yeah. comfortable predicting exactly when that's going to occur. The, the the problem for me is, and I'm generally a very bearish person. Sure, is that there's a lot of problems in the U.S. market, particularly with debt, particularly with overpriced equities. But I don't see that. I I see a relatively tight labor market, and I see the wages are actually increasing. So I don't. I see some economic problems occurring, and I think a recession is quite likely. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of strong fundamental in the market at the moment that I think will prevent a full depression. And let, But to me, the big issue, and this is a very down-the-line issue, is interest on the debt. To me, this is my biggest concern about the U.S. fiscal is and, interest and, on the debt, interest on the debt, and interest on the debt. And, and I very much so agree with you on that. I, I, think that, I think that the Trump administration is going to be able to hold off on that because I think that the Federal Reserve is not willing to allow yeah, – um, I, I well, don't – I don't necessarily think he's going now. Granted, we're talking about 2019. 2020 is the new election. I don't necessarily I think, think he's I think going he's to win. Pressure them to keep interest rates lower than they should be. Sure, exactly. Well, and, and you know, and, and as Obama was able to do for eight years, almost yeah, well, actually more than eight years. Um, I, I think I agree with you. I think that that is the the situation that we're in. I think that Trump is going to be able to pressure them to a certain degree lower. Um, it may actually be better for the the immediate economy that um, we don't pay attention to that. But at the same time, um, I could see also the Federal Reserve raising interest rates to a certain percent, which collapses the economy and allowing a socialist like I, Bernie Sanders coming in. Yeah, I, I so, think so. It's a hard. I think they're hard gonna, choice. I think they're going to gradually increase rates. Um, yeah. All the best sources I have. That's what. That's what I'm. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a feeling I'm getting. Well, I, I, ho- I hope that they do, and, and I would like them to but increase it's gonna, rates. it's not going to be fast enough to prevent an issue later. Exactly, yeah, I, exactly. I think, I think it'll push the problem down the line mm-hmm. quite a bit. But yeah, sure. I, the, from everybody I've talked to, that that seems to be the Federal Reserve's consensus at the moment. And it doesn't seem – and, you know, I've, you know I, I'm relatively connected. I'm not – you know, a lot of these guys are bastards, believe sure. me, uh, to the world of, of, of finance. Mm-hmm. Um. 
I don't I don't think Trump has as much control. He's yeah. not going to be able to pressure the Federal Reserve as much as people think he is. I I very much agree Reserve with that. Is a very, it is a very powerful body and it's backed by a lot of powerful financial interests. So mm-hmm. I don't think that he's going to be able to push him very hard at all. Yeah, I, I, I very much agree with that. Um, let's go ahead and move on, though, to the final topic of this show. Uh, Jackson, I don't know how much you know about this. Mason, I don't know how much you know about this. But there is a type of wine, we'll close out the episode on this, called ice wine. Yeah. This is wine that is that is plucked from the vine when it is frozen. Um, immediately. Immediately, exactly. So I purchased Victoria, my wife, a, a an ice wine from the Finger Lakes region of New York. Um, mm-hmm. She liked it quite a bit. Uh, Jackson, Mason, if you want to... F- add into this after Jackson is done, that's fine. Um, Jackson, can you explain to the listeners what ice wine is? And we'll go ahead and close on this because, you know, obviously it's Tasting Anarchy. This is a show about wine. So we're done with Trump. We're into what wine is like. Yeah, so ice wine, like in terms of modern-day commercial production, the best ice wine started in late 19th century Germany, um, particularly around the traditional German wine regions in the Moselle. Um, But basically what it occurred, and it was actually a very rare thing for Germany. It is rarer in Germany because Germany is actually quite a bit warmer in the winter than um, New York, but it still freezes and snows. Sure. Uh, but what what it, what happened in Germany is when the wine freezes, the um, a lot of the water is separated out of it, and you get a purer and you get a purer must, and it's sort of a raisining process that really concentrates the sugar. The other interesting thing is that. Ice wine, because it's because of the cold and because of the the way the region it's grown, retains a very high amount of acidity. So you actually get a very unique wine. Remember when I mentioned maple syrup in the champagne comment? Sure. Ice wine is literally the same amount of sugar as some maple as light maple syrup. Mm. That's how much sugar it is. But the acidity is so high because of the cold regions it's grown in that you don't perceive it as much. So it's a really fascinating wine. Wow. And so and it's and it's a wine that you know the Canadians do probably the majority of and that's only one in the world where you can say the canadians have a significant impact is and they're actually often using american french hybrids as well but you know okay. I don't, but you can get ice wine of any variety okay it's, mason you want you want to add in to that at all because this is our closing topic this is honestly the first i've like i saw the ice wines while looking at sparklings mm-hmm. yeah. um but i had never i thought i had read about them when jacob brought it up and then hearing Jackson describe it, I was like, nope, nope, I haven't read it. That's not what I, that's oh, no, not, whatever oh, I was like, reading about was not that. If you like sweet wine, you don't have a big glass of it, but with dessert, it's so hard to pair a dessert wine with dessert, oddly enough, because the dessert wine actually has to be sweeter than the dessert for it to work. Right. Um, so I like it, and it's actually an incredibly well-balanced wine, and you won't you don't taste the sweetness as much as you think you would because right. the acidity balances it so well. So I, it, it's not cheap. A good no. bottle is like like Tokai. You want to spend at least twenty bucks, um, but you know it's worth it to have the experience. And I and I think they do a good job. Another thing I had, which was really good, uh, one one year when I was up in Montreal, I bought some ice cider from Canada, and that was shockingly good sure. as well. Well, you know, the wine that Victoria, well, that I got Victoria for Christmas and New Year's, um, it was a very high sweetness level, and we did try it while um, 
I'm not sure how to say it exactly, but like we try, you know, you know, a lot of times I drink wine on special occasions. I do have my wines that are, I guess, just the normal wines or whatever, but uh, we got her a, a pretty standard uh, ice wine from the Finger Lakes region of New York. We we both tried it. It wasn't any sort of special occasion, and I did think it was quite good. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as a sweet wine goes, I'm much more partial to a drier wine. But as far as a sweet wine goes, very interesting, very complex. It had a lot of honey notes, a lot of the, uh, I guess, floral notes of a... Yeah. Of a of a what do you call those flowers that like when the when the snow melts a little bit and then you have these like purple flowers that kind of pop up above the snow. Oh, I, I can't tell you. Yeah, I don't know what they're called, but like that smell, the smell of yeah. these like these these uh, white wine grapes that sort of like grow up when uh, the snow melts a little bit. That's what. That's sort of the smell, the taste, the nuance that I got from these particular wines. So I, I do think it's a great wine, um, or well, a great type, because I'm sure that the Finger Lakes version of New York wines are very different than the than the ones that you get from uh, Germany, which I'm sure yeah, that they, they have. actually make some pretty good Riesling in the. They make there's a few people making a good Riesling in the Finger Lakes. You as know, well, the Finger Lakes has a benefit because the lakes um the lakes moderate the temperature and reflect light, which helps ripen. That's why they're grown there. But New York is it's cold. Okay, well th- that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well you know that's really all I had to say for tonight's episode. Mason, do you have anything else you want to say tonight? So uh, as always, you can follow us on tastinganarchy uh, dot com, tastinganarchy at Twitter, um, tastinganarchy at gmail dot com. Should you want to communicate with us, uh, Jackson's on. Uh, Twitter at Jackson. Yeah. Is it Jackson? What is it's, your Twitter handle? Just Jackson Blood, my name. Uh, Luckily, it's an uncommon name. Uncomplicated. <laughs> um, and, and if anybody's you know curious about wine, wants to know more about it, like I'm honestly, I love talking about it. If you're interested, have any questions, let me know. If you need a wine recommendation, happy to help. Great. So. Oh, yeah. Um, you know what? I don't have anything additional to say. Jackson, you got one more thing you want to say? Or do, or are you, are oh, you yeah, good to go? Oh, yeah, I just want to say, sorry, I, I can't help my argumentative self. Um, I do think that the traditional sweet wines are, I find them more interesting than the ice wines. I think the Tokai, you get a lot more complexity and tertiary mm-hmm. and sort of the honey bees wax, more interesting aroma. But okay. that's a whole other that's a whole other episode. Okay. But I love ice wine, but I like traditional dessert wine more. But we'll need to do an episode said, about react- that. I have incredibly reactionary views on wine. I'm like <laughs> to the right of Genghis Khan on it. <laughs> we we need we need we need to have more episodes with Jackson Blood because I think that every episode we have and actually this episode may be two episodes because we're running almost two hours. Or well, actually more than two hours, two and a half hours. Uh, of just awesome wine uh, insight. I'm going to go ahead and put this out probably on two episodes. So uh, from uh, those of us at Tasting Anarchy, Mason, uh, I would say stay free. Mason, what do you have to say? I have nothing better to say. (laughs) All right, Jackson. Nothing as well. All right, great. So stay free, everybody, and uh, listen to us uh, on Tasting Anarchy or join us at Tasting Anarchy at Twitter, or you can email us if you would like at tastinganarchy on gmail.com. That's all I've got to say, and have a great night and stay free. Happy New Year. Year. Fighting all night. Knock down windows and tear down doors. Drinking half gowns and calling for more. Drinking wines, boat. You to drink wine, pop, pop. Wine, pop. You to drink wine, pop, pop. Wine, pop. You to drink wine, pop, pop. Pass that bottle to me. Oh.
drink at me. Oh, give me some of that slaw. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peter's town, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Horton Sherry. Wine, He wasn't selling for an American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel. Have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Somebody's fifth and somebody's fourth. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine for the other day. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass